When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Astonishing Legends would like to thank ExpressVPN, The Great Courses Plus, Mint Mobile, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Last week, we introduced you to the piratical empire of Jean Lafitte a sophisticated operation that enjoyed prosperity for years in both New Orleans and later in Galveston, Texas. Eventually, it ran its course. But the question is, does the story end there? At one point, Jean and his brother Pierre were taking in $41 million a year in income in today's dollars. Their organization captured at least 100 ships in the Gulf of Mexico. Many of them, Spanish ships laden with treasures stolen from Mexico. There's no question he sold much of it, but it's hard to imagine he didn't keep a handsome portion for himself and his family. It was simply too much wealth to distribute or conceal, quite possibly a literal embarrassment of riches. So, where did what was left over in the margins go? Is it buried in a thousand places on the shores of New Orleans and Galveston? Some say it's guarded by supernatural hellhounds. Others tell of being approached by the ghost of a man who offered it to them, but only if they would swear not to use it for anything self-serving, nefarious, or evil. Those people refused to take it. And what became of Lafitte's infamous flagship, the Pride? There are researchers who say he actually lived aboard her and that his purported headquarters, La Maison Rouge, was just for show. Once the U.S. Navy threatened to crush him if he did not leave Galveston, he torched the city, and he sailed away on the Pride, never to be seen again. Tonight, after we wrap up Lafitte's history, we're sitting down with Cody Hicks, a man whose family claims direct descent from Jean Lafitte, and they have a striking amount of research to back that up. But more than that, he and his brother Chuck and their cousin Jay Jones may have actually found the Pride and you're not gonna believe where they think it is. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. His strange career, his fabled horde, and his uneasy ghost will not let his name die. Yet, despite a considerable body of undisputed facts about Lafitte's political machinations, the man himself remains veiled, enigmatical. J. Frank Doby from his book Coronado's Children, Grosset and Dunlap, New York, 1930. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on the pirate Jean Lafitte. And we're back! Again! Back in a different room of our respective homes. <laughs> yeah, I'm not just walking from your main house to the studio because you're not um, there. Yeah. I'm... Yeah. You could. No, fully... as far as you know, I'm not doing that. Yeah. You could fully be staying in my house in LA. I'd have, I'd have no idea. Not all <laughs> week. Not, not all the time. Yeah. And I, I guess I could be. Yeah. And if you're thinking of showing up, I, I'm here at a different odd hours of all oh. day and night. Oh, so. Okay. Copy that. Yeah. 
Yeah, but uh, no, there is some travel involved, but it's, again, uh, as I said last time, it's still delightful. You can see people start to ease up a little, but maintain those rules and distancing and all that. Yes. If only just to keep my commute short. So, uh, but thank you. Yes, indeed. So uh, last week, a quick note, I'm not positive, but I think we overlooked mentioning the U.S. Embargo Act. And even if we did mention it, restating it won't hurt anybody. It was an important part of the equation in the big picture here with Lafitte. Well, yes, the U.S. Embargo Act was, it was an important big act of the turn of the century there by President Thomas Jefferson in 1807 as an attempt to punish France and England by not allowing them to trade with the United States at all because, well, both of them had been raiding American ships and there was no way to control that because both of them were saying like, uh, no, it's just part of war, so uh, you have to put up with it. And in fact, no foreign country was allowed to trade with the U.S., And the thing is, that's what created the vacuum for the black market. That was the ultimate opportunity for Lafitte to prosper. And although Jefferson wanted to not shed any blood, but punish them economically, the whole thing backfired because the act turned out to be a major economic and political failure. And that guy was a genius. That just goes to show everybody makes mistakes, even President Thomas Jefferson. All right. Well, there's that. We wanted to point that out. Before we get back into the story, we also wanted to remind those of you that listen to and enjoy our other podcast, The Midnight Library. Uh, That is well in the throes of its second season and new episodes are dropping every Sunday. Yeah, episode four of season two drops this weekend, so you got to check that out. Finally, we want to thank everyone for continuing to support our sponsors when you can. It means a lot to us. Some of them are understandably skittish right now, as we all are, but they're hanging in there with us, and that helps us keep things moving, so we seriously appreciate it. Yes, thank you all so, so much. Seriously, folks, we love doing this and providing it to you for free. So thanks again for checking out our sponsors when you can. All right, let's get back into this, man. I am so excited about tonight's show. This interview with Cody was so much fun, and I, of course, am really excited about talking about these ghost stories because some of them are really great. They're It's real American folklore. Oh, absolutely. We got a lot to talk about, and it involves treasure, mystery, and ghosts, and it's going to be really spooky. So when we left off last week, Lafitte had been ordered to leave Galveston and he burnt it to the ground, Campeche, his town, his uh, La Maison Rouge, and he took off on the pride, never to be seen again, which actually is a cliche exaggeration because uh, according to one researcher, William C. Davis, he came back to Galveston several times as a pirate, but just not the big man on campus. So there's some debate as to the activities that he undertook after he left Galveston. And that's what we're going to talk about next is what exactly happened in his final years. Well, officially he leaves on May 7th, 1821. And if you remember, as we talked about in part one, Lafitte and his men agreed to leave Galveston without a fight, because at that point, an American schooner, the USS Enterprise had arrived to request politely that he leave immediately. And this was because Earlier, one of his captains had attacked an American merchant ship. Yes. And I I believe that that's the case where Lafitte made a big show. Again, he's always playing sides. He's always uh, duplicitous. So he's saying, well, I'll tell you what, that was really wrong. We're going to hang the captain. And he hangs this guy on the shore. He makes a big show of it. The Americans are at least appeased at that point, and they leave. Yeah, and there's and there's another thing about this, by the way, in the research, and I don't feel like looking it up and verifying this now, but I mm. actually felt like it, at least one of these books implied that that actually happened twice. It happened the first time, and he uh. hanged the guy, and then the warship that came left or whatever, but then it happened again, 
And that was the straw. It was like, okay, you, oh. you can't, you're not even controlling these people. So I yeah, think no, it no, happened no. twice. Don't quote me on it, but I think it <laughs> happened twice. I'm going to say it happened multiple times. I mean, yeah. from what my notes that I took, okay. it, it kept on happening. Yeah. And Oopsie. and really, like one other time, <laughs> yeah. Well, look, they, they were doing it again and again, and they pressed his luck, Lafitte's luck. He's the leader. He, but he, Buck stops with Lafitte. Well, <laughs> he is a criminal. Yeah. He's in charge of a bunch of criminals who, at first, and this was funny, is that Lafitte had a, claimed he had a mark, which was a license to raid foreign ships. Right, which back then, anybody with a printer and a scanner could have made one. <laughs> he did. Barely he <laughs> hits a parchment and a, and a nice pen, and uh, he got somebody to write it up. He dictated most of his writing, and I believe that's why they don't have much from him other than his signature is that it's believed, I would think, that he could write. Yeah. Well, he had a beautiful signature. Signature is gorgeous. Yeah, so it's hard yeah. to believe that he was illiterate if, you know, that is, in fact, his signature, the ones that we've seen anyway. Right, but an interesting point here is that his men believed he had an official mark, and he never did. Right. He said he did, and they were a little surprised when they found out. Uh, it's like, wait a second, that makes us pirates. He's like, yeah, what's there, there's no difference, really. We're just going to be pirates from now on. Well, that sounds funny, but I, I want everyone to keep in mind that, you know, when a ship gets boarded, crew and passengers are often killed or tortured or worse. Sometimes just a few, sometimes all of them. People are murdered. This should be kept in mind because piracy is a murderous business and a lot of blood was spilled in these years. And it's something, quote, a gentleman corsair could possibly feel guilty about, maybe even as a ghost. Hmm. So if you remember, as you just said, Lafitte sails away on his ship, the Pride. His men burn Campeche and Maison Rouge to the ground, along with everything else. The settlement, the entire thing was burned. And it was reported, though, that of course he left with his massive treasure trove and some stories say he also took his mistress and his infant son. So he may have had progeny that lived on after he did. That's yeah. important to note here. Uh, here's another interesting note. If you uh, are around the Galveston area, which uh, I've been told is a really fun place to visit, very fascinating. They have a Dickens festival there. It might be either the oldest, longest running one or, or maybe just the best. But Maison Rouge is believed to have been at 1417 Harborside Drive near the Galveston Wharf. Except, of course, the foundations around there date to the 1870s. So you're you're off a little bit. Uh, well, I thought that there was, a, uh, they had said that the foundation, or at least what they thought was beneath the foundation, might have dated all the way back to La Maison Rouge. Yeah, that's why they believe that's the case. Obviously, it had to stand somewhere. And if you have a stone or concrete foundation somewhere, something's going to survive, whether it's actually at that location is debatable. But uh, as we said before, it's also at the medical campus for the University of Texas, Austin medical branch. I know what its condition is now because we haven't been there, but I know they had to put a big fence around it because people kept showing up and digging holes in the yard looking for treasure. Oh. <laughs> it's funny you say that. Uh, Charles Ramsey, who wrote a biography of Lafitte, believes that over time, pretty much every foot of Grand Isle uh, has been dug up for pirate gold. Try, yeah. people trying to find it. And that's the point with some of these later stories we're going to talk about uh, treasure is that people don't give up and sometimes it can ruin your life. This gold bug, this hunt for treasure. Well, Lafitte, he couldn't stop himself. And of course, he's in charge of a bunch of guys and that's their job is to rob people and ships. And two weeks after leaving, Lafitte captured a Spanish ship and was going to send that back to Galveston with some of the cargo there. And some of the other cargo, though, was reportedly buried by Lafitte's crew. 
However, an American revenue ship had spotted it and recovered the cargo and then arrested some of those guys for piracy. Yeah, this is pretty interesting. A lot of this information here, uh, this comes from uh, William C. Davis, who wrote The Pirates Lafitte, The Treacherous World of the Corsairs of the Gulf, Corsair being another word for pirate. The the Mm. U.S. Navy is now trying to put an end to piracy, and they're being very proactive about it, and so are the Spaniards. They're sick of it. So in late 1821, the Navy actually successfully ambushed Lafitte, but he escaped. However, he was ultimately captured, but he escaped again. It is thought Mm. with the aid of his friends. And the long and short of it was that he was still operating in the Gulf of Mexico, although his days were numbered, if you believe Mr. Davis, he'd be dead within two years. Now, the next year, he was operating out of Cuba. And in 1822, he was captured again, this time by an American warship who handed him over. And then he was immediately released again. It seems he had a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card from Monopoly. Well, you can't stop a party pirate. No. And you know what? He's got a lot of connections, and he's probably bribing people all over the place, like Pablo Escobar. It's not going to be hard to... uh, put people on the payroll, you know? That's a very, uh, yeah, apropos analogy there because, yeah, if you just pay people enough money, you're liable to flip a lot of them. Yeah. So, however, he started attacking ships that had goods inbound to Cuba and that made Cuba mad. So, they banned all acts of piracy and this is starting to be the beginning of the end for piracy in the Gulf. Now, probably having remembered his good fortune, if you remember, when he aided America at the Battle of New Orleans eight years earlier, he lent aid in the form of an escort to an American schooner that was sailing through the pirate-infested waters, and he even uh, apparently gave them food and extra cannonballs. Yeah, that's another example, I think, of him having that label as, yeah, he's doing a patriotic thing, but he's not really a patriot. He's just trying to garner favor. It's some movie you would see with Billy Zane where he just uh, is is nice to whoever he needs something from. Sure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, in 1823, the year that he would purportedly be killed while aboard his schooner, the General Santander, he attacked a couple of Spanish merchant vessels, theoretically loaded with Spanish silver from the mines in Tegucigalpa. Uh, forgive me if I said that wrong. While oh, the, it's nice. While well, he's been the, practicing for five minutes. I know. There's been a lot of complaints about us always talking about pronouncing things, so I'm trying to do less of that. Oh, wait. Should we get this out of the way? Uh, the uh, Karunkawa. Oh, yeah. Karunkawa. Yes, that was advice given to us by a local, and it was not sent in a complaint form. It was just like, hey, this is no, like, no. I grew up here, and this is how we say it. So yeah. uh, I'm, I, was, I knew I was screwing that up the first time I said it. Uh, Karunkawa. Uh, those are the Native Americans who were on Galveston initially. Well, after this attack on these two Spanish vessels with the silver, the vessels apparently fled, but the weather conditions were bad. And, you know, I always think about that movie, Master Mm -hmm. Commander, Mm -hmm. where there's several naval battles in that movie where it's all about the weather. Who's got the wind? Who's got the, uh, the favorable conditions? And apparently these two ships had favorable conditions and they turned and fired on the General Santander. And not only that, they were loaded for bear. They were uh, ex-pirates or privateers themselves, these vessels, whether they were being operated that way at the time or not, they had a lot of cannons on them. So I want to read this quote from William C. Davis's book, The Pirate's Lafitte, The Treacherous World of the Corsairs of the Gulf. This is on page 463. Uh, that was published by... Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and this is from the Kindle edition. In one of the exchanges, a direct hit from grape shot or a splinter of wood from the General Santander struck Jean Lafitte a desperate wound. He may not have known the extent of his injury, but he turned command over to his chief lieutenant, though he was conscious enough to shout encouragement to his crewmen. Soon the executive officer fell with a mortal wound, and Petty Officer Francisco Similian took over. 
The flashing of the guns in the darkness continued until one o'clock in the morning before Similian broke off the action. He ordered the General Santander's course changed to an easterly bearing to start for Cartagena while their antagonists sailed off for the north. This is something that's always fascinated me with these battles is how they're so pitched and they go on for hours and hours and eventually... Sometimes the just the ships just go their separate ways. Well, you run out of uh, gunpowder and cannonballs yes. at some point. Then otherwise, you're you're resorted to uh, boarding the other ships if you can, and then it's just a bloodbath. Well, Davis goes on to say on the same page, sometime after dawn on February fifth, eighteen twenty three, Jean Lafitte died, aged forty one. A few weeks later, on March tenth, the General Santander limped into Portobello, Panama on her way back to Cartagena. A body could not be saved for that long aboard ship, and on the day he died, his crew buried Captain Jean Lafitte at sea, somewhere in the Gulf of Honduras, probably not far from the Islas de la Bahia. His grave was as lost to time as his brother Pierre's 400 miles to the north. And that's a whole other story, which we're not going to go into in this series, but if you want to... You mean where Pierre ended yeah, up? Yeah, what or happened how with have, Pierre. Yeah, we're going to talk happened, about it a little yeah. bit more here in a second, but we would encourage you to get William C. Davis's book, the Pirates Lafitte. There's so many books out there to read about this. You got to take it all in and decide what you want to believe. But and, and this one is filled with a lot of interesting details, although everybody doesn't agree with it, as you'll hear tonight. But returning to the quote, perhaps it was fitting for a man who never owned a home or had a country that he died fighting for a people not his own, and that his only epitaph appeared in Cartagena, whose legitimate commissions he never carried, and in Colombia, a place he never lived. Quote, the loss of this brave naval official is moving, said the Gacita de Cartagena when it learned the news. Quote, the boldness with which he confronted the superior forces which hit him manifests well that, as an enthusiast of honor, he wished to follow it down the road to death rather than abandon it in flight, End quote. Davis goes on to add, in a final grim irony, the epitaph appeared only in Spanish, the language of his enemies. So that's on, mm. again, still pages 463 and 464 in Davis's book, The Pirate's Lafitte. So that's what Davis posits happened to him. And he has, you know, a lot of footnotes and everything. And it seems like he'd done a significant amount of research into these end days for Lafitte, but not everybody agrees, right? No. And, and here's the thing is that it's pretty glowing reviews, glowing obituary for a guy who is essentially a scallywag, a, a, you know, hellish banditi, as we said in part one. But you have to remember that Lafitte had gotten cozy with the government of Great Colombia or Gran Colombia. That's a name that historians give to the state of Colombia, the country, which was then at the time just known as Colombia. Ah. And that government was being led by Simon Bolivar, and they were commissioning former pirates and privateers as officers for their Navy, because these guys are experienced, they're tough, they're well-seasoned and war veterans here. And Lafitte was no different. He was, a, he was a big wig. So they granted him a commission. They gave him a new ship, as you just said, the General Santander. And this is interesting that uh, Davis also says, for the first time, Lafitte was now legally authorized <laughs> to take Spanish ships. Right. Not just because he wrote up a piece of paper <laughs> saying he could do it. So that was the first time. But anyway, what I'm saying is that it sounds a little glowing here that uh, this is what you're taking as official proof that he was killed. But in America, there was no obituary for him. 
no mention at all. Davis couldn't find one. No, I guess nobody's been able to find one regarding his death. Right. So you think, did they not know about it? What Do they think he was just a scallywag, so they're not going to give him the time of day, even in death? What's going on here? And uh, yeah, I just wanted to make a note that, well, there's another author who wrote a biography, Jack C. Ramsey Jr., and he wrote Jean Lafitte, Prince of Pirates. And the, the paperback is still available, but he believes that that didn't happen at all. He was not killed in a battle at sea. He wasn't buried at sea. He believes that Lafitte died of fever in 1826 or 1827, somewhere on or near Isla Mujeres, and that's in the Yucatan Peninsula, just northeast. And that's what we recounted in part one as well. That's what Dobie believes, is that, uh, as we said before, and I'll just read that passage, it seems safe to assert that he died quietly in a bed in the Yucatan in 1826. Nevertheless, the story has come down that he died in a daredevil engagement with a British war sloop, his buccaneers cheering around him, his locks, quote, matted with blood, end quote, and the dagger in his swarthy hand streaming red. So Dobie's poking a little fun at that grandiose ending. And I would say this too, if uh, for some reason politically you don't know what was going on, it might be easier to declare somebody who's shady just dead. Yeah. Maybe like a Butch Cassidy scenario where like, well, he's dead. Don't go looking for him. Or you don't know what happened. So I myself, I'm not really uh, falling for either one of these. I think it's probably more likely, as history usually uh, falls, that it's the less glamorous death. You died of fever in a squalid hut. And that's the end of it. There's a little bit, not a huge time period, but between, I think the first edition of William C. Davis's book was 1946, so 16 years after Dobie's book, but it was also published uh, again in, uh, or copyrighted again in 2005. Now, apparently, to be fair, though, Davis uh, does have an account that is similar to this, some Lafitte passing away in the Yucatan yeah. in 1826 or 1827, but he claims that that was actually Pierre Lafitte and that the death had occurred sometime in 1821. So now that Jean Lafitte, in life, in any case, has faded from the picture, he is dead at some point, probably at least after 1827. What happens after that? The man in name lives on, and certainly what lives on even stronger is rumors of all this vast wealth that he had accumulated, his treasure. And so then begin the rumors which fuel the legends. So backing up here a little bit, just to recap, all the Baratarians, Lafitte and all his men who had fought at the Battle of New Orleans had received full pardons from the fourth U.S. President James Madison, but they continued to raid American traders. So that man-of-war ship that shows up in 1820, that was commanded by Lieutenant Kearney, who sailed into Galveston Bay with those polite orders that he, he split immediately. Well, this leads to a treasure rumor that's one of the first ones, and you're going to and we're going to hear our guest talk a little bit about tonight. Apparently, evidently, before Lafitte left, one legend says that Kearney's men, Lieutenant Kearney, they had seen Lafitte really greatly distressed and pacing about, muttering something about my treasure and the three trees, and he was really upset, pacing back and forth. Now, the three trees were a well-known spot on Galveston Island. So guess what they do? They immediately went to the location of the three trees, found a spot where the dirt had been dug up recently, and they began digging themselves. They dug until they hit a box. But what was inside was a treasure only to Lafitte. It was the body of his beautiful young bride. Yeah, it's not clear what happened to her either. 
in that story anywhere. I can't no. find any details on that, but yeah. So either he had another mistress possibly that he left. That's the other rumor that, you know, when he took off, he had taken his other mistress and a newborn or his infant son. You don't know who this is, but apparently what's interesting is that that kiboshes this treasure. And yeah, it was a treasure to him, but not what they thought. But immediately people are cocking an ear to hear of anything that might lead to where all of his money is. You know, something that J. Frank Doby says, you know, the U.S. portion of the coastline of the Gulf of Mexico, you know, it spans 1,680 miles. And as Doby jokingly comments, nearly every inland and island has a Lafitte treasure story attached to it. And as of 1930, when he published the book, when the book came out, Doby says that about once or twice a year, you'd hear a newspaper story from Texas or Louisiana, and they would publish a story about someone hunting for one of Lafitte's treasures. But the most intensely devoted searches for treasure are done in secret, and they never make the papers. Yeah. Wait till you hear tonight from Cody Hicks what the law says in Texas when you find a treasure. <laughs> right. Well, in the 1930s, as Doby says, yeah, once or twice a year, you, you would make the news. Somebody had great evidence and information or a map or some chart about Lafitte's treasure. and They were going to go out and they were going to be the ones to find it. But of course, nobody ever did. And I'm sure that that has uh, waned in the decades since then. But the stories persist. People still do remember it's out there somewhere. And that obsession to find the treasure has touched a lot of people. And some of it has not been good. Hi, I'm Emma Mycroft. And you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. So now we're going to talk about the treasure and the people that go looking for it and the stories that have followed. And and this first one we're going to uh, talk about comes from Doby's book. And it's a great example of how this hunt for treasure, this obsession, it can ruin your life and your own personal fortune looking for it. And this first story is someone he calls Newell the Printer. And this is a man from New Orleans who worked as a printer, but also had a lifelong desire to find Lafitte's treasure and it consumed him and it shortened his life. Yeah. here I want to read a couple of excerpts from Doby's book here. This is a uh, location 4,705 of the mm. Kindle edition of Coronado's Children. We have a hard copy too. We could probably get that page number actually. Yeah, but you have a page number there on the print edition? Well, it starts off at uh, 317 if okay. you get the book. Yes. All right. So here's an uh, interesting section. Uh, Newell, a uh, New Orleans printer, was one of these solitary and silent seekers. For 20 years, he lived with and for his aureate vision. Along about the middle of the last century, Newell's father befriended a battered old seafaring derelict who was soon to make the final voyage. The derelict was grateful and bequeathed to the elder Newell a chart to a vast treasure purporting to have been buried by Lafitte's men on a little island in Lake Bourne. The father turned the chart over to his son, the printer. Printer Newell had all confidence in the chart and at once began hoarding his wages to fit out an expedition. He bought an old smack, a camping outfit, and tools and disappeared from the printing establishment. For many weeks, he cruised among the islands along the coastline, sometimes digging for days in a barren sandbar. So uh, there's a little more that happens here, but I wanna, I'm going to skip ahead because you can obviously get the book and I recommend it if you want to, but I want to skip around to uh, this more poignant paragraph. Years and years passed, 5, 10, 15, 20 of them, the golden dream more luminous with each lustrum. Among the unnumbered islands outside the Rigolets, 
Newell spaded up thousands of tons of sand. Sometimes he dug holes so deep that you, quote, could have buried a fishing smack in one of them, end quote. His persistence was sheer genius. Youth turned to middle age and Newell's hair was white. In the summer of 1871, some coast men saw him scudding out to sea in the teeth of a fearful hurricane. The next day, a lumber vessel limped into Pearl River Harbor towing a little boat that was recognized as Newell's. Then his body was found, washed up on a drift. Presumably the storm had swept him off the deck of his smack and he had drowned. So there you go. That's it's been his whole life. Yeah, no, he couldn't even stop in the face of a hurricane. Still had to go out. So the only thing he found was that his desire did not wane. But the parts of the book uh, and the story here, which you did not get to, was that, you know, he he shielded himself away from life because he didn't want to trust anyone. He kept to himself and it just fueled his obsession. And treasure has ruined so many people's lives. Yeah, it reminds me of some of the interactions that were had by the gentleman behind the book we had uh, read for the Knights of the Golden Circle, Rebel Gold. It had two titles, but Rebel Gold was one of them because there was the the one gentleman, uh, the subject of the story, had gone out with someone else who immediately betrayed him. So it's interesting. You, you got to be careful when you're on those treasure hunts. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, of course, people have uh, killed each other. That's what Doby was getting at is that some of the... Uh, more fantastical stories don't make the paper. You don't know what's happened out there in the in the wilderness. The next story here is where somebody may have found something, or at least something worthwhile to follow up on. It's labeled the Spanish Dagger, and this takes place on Padre Island, west of Corpus Christi, Texas. Now, this would be prior to 1930, but apparently a small group of adventurous gentlemen had gone to this old-timer named Charlie Blucher, who is a surveyor of uh, Nueces County, and he had them run lines because they, they got a tip on something. So Charlie runs the lines as a surveyor, and all the lines point back to Padre Island. Now, what they were looking for, though, was the rumored brass spikes that mark the treasure that somehow they had got some information on. Well, of course, they found hundreds of Spanish daggers or yucca plants, but never the brass spikes, because they were looking for a ship, a Spanish ship that was taken over by Lafitte's men and that they had lost during a storm. So one legend goes that when Lafitte was ordered out of Galveston Island, he sent three of his four ships to fend for themselves. He first selected a crew, however, for his own ship, the Pride, and Lafitte sailed to the mouth of the Lavaca River to hide out and privateer when the opportunity rose. So at that time, Port Lavaca was made up of treacherous sandbars and a narrow channel that only Lafitte's men knew of. And this narrow, twisting channel led to a landing that was kind of a hideout. It was out of sight from the ships at sea. So it was a good place to get to, hard to find, hard to navigate. Uh, However, they did get spotted once when they were out uh, cruising for prizes, and a U.S. revenue cutter is in pursuit. Now, the captain waits out of sight. He does a clever thing. Apparently, he's just as clever as Lafitte. He keeps out of sight, and Lafitte goes up this narrow channel, waits for a few days, and the captain of the cutter makes a show of like, well, we're done. We're not going to follow you. Looks like he's taken off. He's waiting for Lafitte to reemerge, and when he does, he's now so close to the pride that they're trapped. And the pride gets stuck in the sandbars as far up as the rivers he could get. And that's where he gets stuck trying to get away from uh, this cutter. 
So what he has to do now is like, they're finished. The ship is finished. They have to now divide up the treasure between the men. And Lafitte tells them to just scatter, go fend for yourselves. And he only keeps two men with him. So Lafitte takes his two trusted men ashore with a chest with reportedly a million dollars of gold and jewels in it. And it's so heavy, though, they can't carry it very far. So they only make it a quarter mile east of the Lavaca River to a hiding spot on a salt grass flat, and that's where they buried the treasure. And here's a little fun little thing about the story. So you got to mark the treasure, right? Well, Lafitte had a long brass staff, which at the time was called a Jacob's staff. And what you did is instead of using a tripod, you placed a compass on a little receptacle at the top of the brass staff, this brass pole. That was basically a loop. So apparently, after they buried this treasure, what Lafitte does is he pounds this thing into the ground so it's sticking up maybe only like a foot. And it's a good marker. If they could find that again, he knows the bearings. And it's noticed that he didn't really take any written notes. So what Lafitte does is that he used his compass and he, he got a bearing with the compass and he took a line of sight here with two bearings on two mots, or as we would call them, cops of trees. And, and there were two well-known mots, M-O-T-T-E, the Kentucky mot and the Maldine mot, M-A-U-L-D-I-N. So apparently it's a pretty well-known uh, in the area for a landmark, these two uh, mots of trees. And this is a pretty rough ending here for Lafitte. So he and his two men, they travel for three days without food, probably not much clean water, and they find shelter at a settler's cabin. And so they had the owner of the cabin help them out, gave him some horses, but no saddles. And Lafitte just basically told his men, I'm going to head north into Indian country, up to the Red River. And he told them, you should go back to New Orleans, where, where you came from, and lead clean lives. Do something with your lives. We're done pirating here. And he heads off on his horse north. But he gave them one rule about the treasure. He said, that they could come back after three years and take the treasure if it was still there. Yeah. So that gave him three years to like, well, you know, I am the captain. If I come back and I need it and I can find it, I'll take the treasure. However, wait three years, you can come back. If you find it again and I haven't picked it up, it's yours. But they never saw him again. Yeah, and here's what's crazy about that story. Later on, this uh, rancher acquired that land and was ranching on it, probably not thinking too much about it. And one of his ranch hands was out uh, with some horses and was walking and actually hit his shin on a hard stick sticking out of the ground and looked down and it was the Jacob staff, but he didn't recognize what it was. And so he wound up pulling it up out of the ground to take it to the rancher to show it to him because it was clearly man-made out there in the middle of this field. So he takes it back to the rancher and the rancher is like immediately knows what it is because he knows the story. And he's like, where'd you find this? Take me back. And they could not yeah. find the spot where he pulled it up. And that was the X that marked the spot, if you believe that part of the legend. That story is a little bit of confirmation from the original story, because what happened after supposedly Lafitte rode off and they never saw him again, those two men, one of them ended up in a New Orleans saloon, but he was dying. I'm not sure from drink or poor health, but he ends up telling his story, his secret to the Irish bartender there. The other man, uh, he actually married. He had two sons. He seemed to uh, follow Lafitte's advice and took up clean living. And when those two sons were old enough, they were able to corroborate that story with the bartender. 
that the treasure was indeed buried and marked with a brass rod. And they had good information now. So they took off searching for it. And of course, they found nothing. But that's a great story. And it ties in with the African-American ranch hand and his boss named Hill, who owned the property later on. And that's what he found. So I, I like that part of it, that the story of the the brass rod, yeah. the Jacob staff, is still part of that. And then that's actually found. Yeah. And see, I wonder if since then anybody's been out there with a GPR, with a ground penetrating radar. Because, I mean, if I was the ranch owner, I would I would invest in that. Although tonight you'll hear some a funny anecdote about what happens when you take this high-tech equipment out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sometimes it doesn't go as you, as you planned. Well, there's a, a few other stories in here just like that where it never works out quite what you think, and it'll drive you mad. There have been other searchers who have come and gone and been more notable, actually found some stuff. One story here is of J.C. Wise out of San Antonio. This would be just a couple of years before 1930. And that's why I believe that uh, Doby puts it in the book here. But they first start off looking for the treasure at the mouth of the Colorado River instead of Lavaca, that Lavaca area. But when they got to the site there, the rancher who owned the place refused to let them on. So they had to go by water and they thought that they could dive on it. And uh, what they did, though, was locate an old ship which they thought had rotted away, and they thought they found Lafitte's old ship. And, of course, we talk about machinery. They had apparently some kind of device that would uh, detect metals in the mud and in the water. But, of course, as you said before, weather plays such a, a part of it that it rained for like five days. They're knee-deep in mud, and the machine didn't indicate a thing, it right. says here. Right. But he knows. It's like, I mean, come on. They located the ship. It can't be too far away. But in what direction? They used that with the and took a sighting on the two mots and figured they could use that to get pretty close to where they thought the chest actually was. They had triangulated it, so they had a good bearing on it, but of course it was too hard to get to. Yeah. And uh, nature ne rarely helps out. The next story here is interesting because it comes from an old Texas ranger, and uh, apparently he'd written his account down in a letter that he was living in Lavaca County in 1870. And he tells a tale about his brother being hired by a farmer named Bundick. And one day this farmer Bundick goes out turkey hunting and he's walking around. It's raining. He's in tall grass, I believe. And he bangs his leg on something very hard. And uh, you can imagine if you ever banged your kneecap really bad on something or fell down or kicked something really hard, you're just blind with pain. And that was the case here. But he noticed he'd kicked something really unusual that he thought was a really weird colored brick. And he takes this brick back to the farmhouse and the Texas Ranger's brother eventually realizes what it is. It's a solid silver bar. It was silver bullion left by Lafitte's men. They had found some portion of a treasure there. And here's what it turns out to be so like other treasure stories. They go back. It's just the same day or same time span. They go back, they go looking for it, and they find a turkey feather. They find Bundick's tracks, the farmer's tracks in the mud, can't find the bricks anymore. Just couldn't find them. And the guy thought like, man, I must have been just yards away from this thing and never found it. And they go back year after year and then like nobody ever finds it again. Now it's thought that uh, other people had found a piece of bullion, silver bullion at some point and made off with it, just never told anybody over the years. But somewhere out there could be a pile of silver bullion. Yeah. Well, if you were a farmer or something and you owned that land and you found that, 
Would you necessarily announce it, you know? <laughs> well, at some point, no. <laughs> well, in the chapter, there's one final story that plays out like a regular treasure story about William Selkirk, who had bought up uh, 6,000 acres of land along the Colorado River. Part of it was a place called Gold Point, which he had gotten a description of that may have the treasure. And the one thing that's interesting about that is that some guys had shown up on the property, got permission from the caretaker, started digging, and they may have found something. The caretaker had tried to protect his boss's interest, but these guys showed up in the middle of the night and when they showed up the next morning, there was a rectangle out of the earth. While the caretaker was digging, he was like, let me dig. And then he was like, and then he struck something and he decided to pretend there was nothing there. And this was a waste of time and he was going to go home. And they were like, yeah, we'll go right. home too. And then after he went <laughs> they, home, they came back and dug it up the next morning. Yeah. It was gone. So I loved it uh, when you told me that anecdote before I had actually read that passage. And what I loved about it was uh, one, it's that kind of thing. Darn you guys. And then the other part was that they found something. Yeah. You don't know what it was, but they... If you take the story to be true, they found something <laughs> because not only is there some, uh, again, nobody got hurt, but it was somebody buying a lot of land who had a lot of money out of New York, 6,000 acres from, uh, I believe he bought it from the Mexican government and was attending like, that's it. I'm buying the whole region. And of course, a couple of adventurers come along and they buffalo him. They, they go around him and they get the hired hand to help them who is trying to be faithful and honest to his employer. But they, they snookered him. The way the story's told, he volunteered to help because he knew it was the only way he could keep an eye on them and that he couldn't prevent them from digging. Yeah, absolutely. To yeah. keep his good name going, he figured like, well, if I just say no, they're going to come back in the middle of the night and I can't watch them the whole time. So right. I'll at least be able to report what they're doing and maybe kind of steer them away. Yeah. So he was being a good employee. But yeah, those guys, uh, This again, what I like about it is that they found something. Man, I would love to know what that rectangle held. Yeah. What kind of a chest. Well, now we're going to hear a modern day story about some adventurous guys who actually also may have found something connected to Jean Lafitte. They may have found his ship, the Pride. You can correct me, Scott, but I believe their story is actually profiled on an episode of Expedition Unknown. And I'm looking at it as season five, episode four. There's a little bit of contention there, I think. But yeah, it's Expedition I, you know, Unknown with Josh Gates. Yeah. And uh, the reason that the episode number is weird, because depending on where you find it to stream it, it says it's episode four. And then on another one, it says it's episode 13. I'm not sure what's going on there, but it's okay. definitely in season four of Expedition yeah. Unknown, which is a, oh, a couple years ago. season five, right. Or, okay. Yeah, oh, is it season five? Maybe it's five. Don't listen yeah. to us. Just look up Expedition <laughs> Unknown in Lafitte and it comes right up. You'll find it on whether it's Amazon or Netflix. I can't remember where I find I wound up getting it. I think it was on Apple TV as well. You know where I found it and I'm going to put a link to is on Facebook, actually, where oh, there are a bunch of uh, Expedition Unknown videos. So it's on there. Uh, it apparently was posted February 17th. I'm not sure what year, but it's Expedition Unknown Season 5, Episode 4. Jean Lafitte's treasure. Yes. And uh, it's free. So that's pretty good. I'm not sure that, I don't know if they're supposed to be up there for free, but uh, I got to watch it. It's really fascinating. Well, yeah. And so it's, it's interesting. The first half of it talks a lot about New Orleans. He goes there. It's a, he tells the story much the same way anybody would chronologically, the same way we did. He starts out in New Orleans looking around there. Then he winds up going to Galveston. And when he gets to Galveston, he gets hooked up with uh, what he calls the Hicks brothers. When it turns out uh, two of them are brothers and one's a cousin, actually. Their names are Cody Hicks, Chuck Hicks, and Jay Jones, Jay being the cousin. And they play different roles in their own organization where they have been searching for years 
for connections to Lafitte's ship, the Pride, but also their family claims direct descendancy from Jean Lafitte themselves. And it's a pretty fascinating story. And when I reached out to him, and I, I think I talked about this a little bit in the interview, it might have wound up cut, I can't remember, but I didn't think I'd hear back from him because I just did that thing where I just blindly messaged him on Facebook, even though we weren't friends. And I know that whenever somebody does that to me, I don't usually see it until like a year and a half later, for whatever reason, because Facebook is a navigational nightmare, in my opinion. But Cody wound up writing me back in a few days. And he's like, yeah, sure, I'll talk to you. So uh, let's get into this interview for us, unless you have anything else you want to say before we go into it it was a really fun episode to watch because they're actually out there looking at stuff and and uh, have a few interesting things that turn up and the way they dig this up is a lot of fun but it's not just the artifacts of maybe something that lafitte left behind that can be found or is a one step to a possible treasure is that these guys have really done their homework and they may have found something historically about jean lafitte that's a lot more complex and mysterious than previous authors have thought we are on the phone with Cody Hicks. Cody, can you say hello to our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, and maybe you can explain uh, something about your brothers and your relationship with the pirate Jean Lafitte. Hello, listeners. My name is Cody Hicks. Yes, I am a descendant of a pirate that is Jean Lafitte. Well, let's see a little bit about me. I am from Baytown, Texas. I was in the military. I actually joined the Army at 18, and I did that for about 10 years. Uh, I used to jump out of airplanes and do all kinds of crazy stuff like that. I kind of uh, developed an adventurous side to myself. I also have a philosophy degree from University of Houston, which, again, expanded on my, my desire to ask questions and thirst for knowledge, which has helped drive what we're doing in the search for Lafitte. I'm also joined by my cousin, Jay Jones, and my brother, Chuck Hicks. We were all featured on the Expedition Unknown episode. Jay is more of the record keeper, historian. Chuck and I are fly off the seat of our pants kind of people. And, you know, we hear about something, we just go check it out. Jay sort of keeps us grounded. <laughs> Chuck actually has a chiropractic degree, and he knows all about the human body. It actually comes more into play more than you think because various things have come up in the past. Like, say, for example, Pierre Lafitte was supposedly had a stroke at one point in time. Well, we looked at the physician, what his statements were. And so Chuck's medical background also helps in this whole thing. And so that sort of is the point. We're not armchair theorists. We actually take a broad look at what perhaps went on with Lafitte to get a more sound idea instead of just specifically records and documents and facts, what actually was going on around Lafitte at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Well, let me back up a little bit with the army and jumping out of airplanes. Was Does that mean you were airborne? It does. And it also means that I was stationed in North Carolina there out of Fort Bragg. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm talking to you from Greensboro. Forrest is in Los Angeles, but I'm from North Carolina and we both were in LA together, but my family just moved back east. So we're I, I'm okay. not too far from your old stomping grounds in, I guess. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah. I know all about uh, military towns. Well, you know, it's funny, too, because Fayetteville, that's connected to Lafitte, I guess, when we were doing our research anyway. that It's a variation on the name Lafitte. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a Fayetteville, Louisiana as well. And so, yeah, I'm sure that does play into it. 
there's so much about Lafitte. I don't say we've just scratched the surface, but we definitely have not dove into everything. You know, one of the things that you guys talked about on that episode of Expedition Unknown, which was a really, really interesting episode. We had questions about that as well. But one of the things you talked about was your family stories and your history. There was a brief mention of a possible alias, Jean-Baptiste Ottoman, I think it was. So what's your understanding of how you guys might be related to him? And um, what kind of research have you done that supports it? Well, let me start by saying this. When it comes to Lafitte, modern times, modern historians, when they're looking at him and trying to understand who he is, or was, that is, let me say, they assume from the beginning that Lafitte was his real name. And when you even bring up the idea of an alias, their response is, oh, yeah, I'm sure you use aliases. The problem with that is that no one has ever found a single birth certificate for Jean and Pierre Lafitte. There was one guy, uh, William C. Davis, he wrote Pirates Lafitte, but he even mentions in his notes, and, and you know, on these birth certificates that he found in France, it puts them 20 years older than they were. Even though he presents it in his book that these are the guys, and his notes, when you go to the back, it says, these are probably not them, and yada, yada, this and that. And oh, so interesting. that's the point. When we're looking at this, we're saying that Lafitte was the alias. He had a true identity. Think about it. He's a pirate. He was wanted by multiple countries. And the kind of organization that he had, why would he use his real name to do all that? So let me back up a little bit more. How do we think we found out that we are the descendants of Lafitte? Well, it all started with a family story that's been passed down through generations. And we know exactly where the story started from. And it was only kept by word of mouth and passed down through the family. And that is the pirate Jean Lafitte used that as an alias to conceal his true identity and to protect his family. This woman where it started, who would have been some odd great grandmother, apparently what happened, she eyewitnessed these pirates who were the Lafitte's discussing with other family members and other business members. She happened to be there as a young lady. We looked at her, who her family was, her father and uncles and all them, and we started finding out they were privateers. The thing is, they were selling a bunch of stuff on the black market. We couldn't tell where it was coming from. And then so what we did was I had several interviews with like um, the director of um, HNOC, Historical New Orleans Center. Uh-huh. And, you know, we showed her the evidence we had, and she said, well, these people that you're looking at right here, it appears as though they were at least pirates or privateers. And then so that's where we connected in the family story with that is where it began. Now, there's several other things going on here, but our ancestors shadowed Lafitte. Everything that Lafitte did, that is as far as we know, he pirated goods, but he was selling them somehow. Well, our ancestors were selling pirated goods. We didn't know where they were getting it from. Lafitte was known to have had warehouses in like a place called Donaldsonville, Louisiana. Yep. But there's never been any evidence. Well, guess what? The Ottomans had warehouses in Donaldsonville. Oh, wow. Correct. So everywhere that Lafitte was supposed to have done something, we find the Ottomans doing it. But then everywhere that the Ottomans were supposed to have received said goods, Lafitte's doing it. 
And so that's where we're putting two and two together. Now, we're looking at these two things and how they match up, right? But then we have the family story of this little girl who said she eyewitnessed Lafitte and her father. It would, it, Lafitte supposedly would have been her uncle. Lafitte and her father discussing what to do with this stuff, secret meetings. So all of this put together, it just makes sense. Does that mean her father would have been whoever Pierre was or somebody or an additional relative? No, it would have been an additional. Okay, so the two personas we know from history are Joan and Pierre. They supposedly had another brother, an older brother. We came across that in our research from the book uh, Coronado's Children by J. Frank Dobie, who mentions there was another brother, but he's not mentioned in the history books much. Correct. And he actually went by a different name. And I want to say it's Alexander U or something like that, Y-E-U-X, something like that. So we know they possibly had a, another brother, but, you know, who knows, you know, as far as the history books are concerned. Actually, our family, there was five of them living who had moved from France and moved into the New Orleans, Louisiana area at that time. The two that were supposedly that we think were Jean and Pierre Lafitte, that was Jean-Baptiste Ottoman and Gaspard Ottoman. And they were actually operating around the New Orleans area. We also have two other brothers, two younger brothers, who were actually the ones who owned the property and maintained the warehouses in Donaldsonville. They also had one other older brother who he didn't own any property there. We know we were putting him in Louisiana at that time, but he didn't, we can't figure out where exactly he was moving around to or what. He was actually a cannoneer for Napoleon back in the wee old days. Now I say wee old days. I mean, hell, all this is wee old days. <laughs> he was actually in the military for Napoleon. Okay, so Adel Ottoman, who, was, who we believe started his story, uh, who I witnessed this going on, she was the daughter of one of the guys uh, maintaining the warehouses in Donaldsonville. Okay. And Lafitte, who was uh, known to have frequent Donaldsonville to, you know, I guess, whatever he was doing, bring goods or inspect his warehouses or get munitions or whatever it was. It's during these meetings that she was there at the house or warehouse and I witnessed this family get together. And what, what better of a way for them to keep their identity and to look after each other? You know, four or five brothers. Um, right. you know, it's a family operation. It's going to go way deeper than this. When you hear my theory, I think it's going to blow your mind. You know, we already <laughs> did the first part of this and we did our own, you know, look at the history. And uh, I mean, we're newcomers to this. You, you've got years of studying it. We don't pretend to be any kind of experts. We, it's one of the things we joke about on our show. We bounce around lots of different topics, so we only get to learn about things for a few weeks. But we love to dive as deep as we can in that time. And one of the things that I said in part one of this series was, it's amazing to me when you read the history books that there were no real attempts to overthrow him or take over. Like if you're in that much power, you would seem like there's somebody always gunning for your position and that would explain it, honestly. If they had a, like a strong family network and everybody was just looking out for each other, that would explain why that doesn't necessarily come up, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually quite powerful, you know, and especially if they're respected. Yeah. You know, one of the things that scholars oftentimes, they're not asking the right kinds of questions. This is where my philosophy comes in. So 
Lafitte shows up on the scene in New Orleans around, I think it's around 1804. Is that what you guys have? Yeah, we weren't sure, you know, really on the scene in 1810, but they weren't exactly sure, like, when he got there. It was thought around the time of the Louisiana Purchase, which would have been 1803. So 1803 to 1804. Yeah, when he first showed up, right? yeah, Yeah, when they thought he first appeared in New Orleans. Very good. You guys are falling right into my trap. <laughs> 1804 is the earliest accounts of him actually showing up. There's a manifest when they showed up at the dock, I believe, the first time. And it was like one of the last times that they actually obeyed authority there. But they have him and several of his cronies were on the boat and they showed up. Don't exactly know what, what all that transpired there. But anyways, within just a couple of years from that moment, Lafitte managed to wrangle up all of these privateers slash pirates and managed to turn them into an organized business. The ships going out, pirating goods and ships, bringing them back to shore. And then next thing you know, they're they're loading this stuff up onto smaller boats to go up river to black markets or to be sold, uh, you know, out of underground shops in New Orleans. This turned into a very heavy business, a very organized business. Some people could say one of the best organized crimes syndicates of all time, you know, if you really look into it. But here's the deal. When he showed up in 1804, Jean Lafitte was 21 years old. How does someone who is 21 years old wrangle up 30, 40, 50-year-old pirates and turn it into a business? See, that's the question that isn't being answered. People are looking over this. Here's my theory. Jean Lafitte was a French agent sent by the French government as a land grab in the United States. You just fell into it. The Louisiana (laughs) Purchase was in 1803. Lafitte shows up in 1804 on the scene, somehow managing to group all of these people together, turn it into a business. And right then start making money and have control over Mississippi River and pretty much the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, that's a super valid theory. I got no problems with that theory. (laughs) And here's where it's sort of our family history sort of ties into that. The Altamans, those group of men that we were talking about, the two in Donaldsonville, John Baptiste and Gaspard out of New Orleans. And then, of course, we had this cannoneer who fought for Napoleon back in the Napoleonic Wars. Their father was, from what we can tell, he was a very high-ranking naval something. Not just one ship captain. I think he was some kind of admiral. But he was more of an undercover kind of admiral. He performed more surveillance-type operations on countries. And he, he actually knew Napoleon. He was probably working in conjunction with him. This guy, the progenitor, his name was Jean-Nicolas Hoffman. We have actual transatlantic records of him making trips from France to New Orleans at least once every two years, back and forth. Along on his ship, he would normally have Gaspard and the two younger brothers that were in Donaldsonville. Now, this was going on prior to the 1804 incident. Once 1804 rolled around, this stopped. They were doing this whenever it was owned by Louisiana. And we believe that what they were doing was 
paving the way. And then another interesting thing about this character, the progenitor, Jean Nicholas, is that he was also a Mason. Oh. And so was Napoleon. Oh, and at the same time as well, for a brief period of time, he was um, right after the French Revolution, Jean Nicholas ended up being, um, when they were first setting up the new government and counties and territories and all that, he was one of the representatives for his area, which was uh, Martigue. And so he was a high political figure. He probably helped put Napoleon into you know, office. And yeah, there's strong ties there. So here's another thing that modern day scholars are not asking. Anywhere in this whole thing where they claim, you know, they say, well, you know, Lafitte was French and he was over here. Not only was he quote unquote a privateer, he was also issuing his own letters of mark. I don't know if y'all knew about that. Yes. Yeah, we did read mm-hmm. that. Correct. He was issuing his own letters of mark. Has the French government made any comment, denial, or affirmation? No. No. They haven't. Right. They're completely silent on the whole idea about Lafitte. That's what I'm saying is that there's really more to the story. You kind of have to stretch your mind out a little bit and not not just exactly what's written on paper about Jean and Pierre Lafitte, but what was going on around him, what is really taking place. Think outside the box on this, because the thing is, to be honest with you, even after 200 years, they're still fooling us. Yeah. Our listeners are listening and they're saying, "Okay, this is interesting. But what do you feel like are some of the things that tilt the scale in the favor of the Ottomans being the Lafitte's as opposed to just associates of the Lafitte's? Well, that's a good question. We do know that at least our ancestors were privateers slash pirates, whatever you want to call them, in the least. Now, what is the actual evidence of them being the Lafitte? And I'm afraid to tell you that nobody has that. Do the Lafitte's have descendants with the Lafitte name? Have you guys pursued any sort of DNA exploration in any of that? Or or is there not any descendants of them? There supposedly are descendants that have the Lafitte name. Now, the thing is, what you also got to keep in mind is there were other Lafitte's. Yeah, right. There's a lot. It's a common name, kind of. Correct. Yeah, it's a pretty common French name. But we've run across lots of people that claim to be Lafitte descendants, and I'm not taking nothing away from them by any means. Right. I'm sure a lot of it is also based on legend. And there is also several accounts that is, they were more eyewitness and less documentational that Pierre Lafitte had a child with such and such lady, but we don't have any actual documented evidence of that. On the Ottoman side, the people who would have been Pierre Lafitte, we do have birth certificates for his children. So DNA testing, when it comes to that, what do we test it to? We have no bones <laughs> or anything, yeah. you know, from the feats. And so it gets really difficult. Now, I guess one thing we could do is test ourselves to some of these other claimed Lafitte descendants. But again, that gets a little hairy. Who knows what might turn up on that? That cousin's way far removed. Right. And you don't know how accurate their own backgrounds necessarily are. 
Because obviously, the, the bigger personality somebody is, lots of people claim descent. We, I mean, we've learned this because we've been covering legendary people for five years now, and there's always a lot of people like, oh yeah. I mean, my family had rumored connection to Cole Younger and the Younger brothers, and I'm on Ancestry. I have like a one of the deluxe world ancestry memberships. And I've built this huge family tree there. And I have looked and looked and looked for any connection to Cole Younger. And I can't find it. I found Youngers and I found other family names, but I couldn't find Cole in there. But one of the stories that my grandmother used to tell before she passed away was that there was a joke about a young child in the family, uh, because I'm related to a man named Galusha Grow, who was the uh, speaker of the house when Lincoln was president so there was a connection between him and Younger and another family name, which was Daly. And there was a baby and the family joke was, how's that baby doing? And they would say, oh, she grows younger daily because those were her three names. That was all connected back to Cole Younger. <laughs> but I've spent hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, just hours. But that's one of those things where it's like this family story has, you know, it came down from my grandmother who was in her 90s, passed away, you know, about 10 years ago. It seems so real. She wasn't glorifying it. She was just like, oh no, we all joked about that. And Cole Younger was mixed in in there somewhere. And I was just like, wow, it's interesting. But I couldn't find the connection on Ancestry. So in my family, we believe it on my father's side that there's some connection there. So I'm one of those people, but you know, if I took DNA, I don't know if it would line up and you know, who knows where Cole Younger's descendants are. I haven't pursued that, but I know how it feels to be like trying to make some kind of connection there. But it seems like you guys have really done a lot of work. You've got a lot of those events all being aligned, the years and the number of people and the offspring, right. and it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's difficult because, uh, again, we're talking about something that happened over 200 years ago, uh, back when they record-keeping was not something that they did. Like it, it, There was nothing digital, and records get lost, and no records are taken. and then, we're talking about a time where piracy was still a big thing. And we don't know where they were born. They showed up on the scene in 1804. We don't know where they died. That is as far as when you're looking at the actual name Lafitte. Right. And so they're phantoms. And yeah, and so to sort of, you know, add on to that, there's no rock hard evidence. We're just looking at the profile. In terms of the Ottomans that you think are probably the Lafitte's, do you have information on their deaths with their original name? Yes, for the Ottomans, we do, except for one character, which we believe was Jean Lafitte, um, ironic enough. <laughs> Jean-Baptiste Ottoman. We don't know where he died. Davis posits in his book that he was buried at sea after a some kind of clash in, off Cuba, right? Or something like that. Yeah. I have my reservations about Davis, but yes, that was what he claimed. Uh, there's just, you know, several theories on what happened to him. Right. That's one possibility. Another one is that he was buried in the Yucatan. Yeah. What is that story? We've only heard hints of that story. What is the Yucatan story like in a more detailed sense? So one of the theories, and you know, there's a little evidence to go with it, but one of the other countries that he apparently was working with and helping out. I believe was Cartagena. Mm -hmm. Yep. Now it, it could have been trade wise. It could have been something else. I don't know. He had some kind of connection there. So one of the theories is that when he actually left Galveston, he went down there to find new work, refuge, whatever you want to call it. And the story is, which is a legend, 
that he was in a sword fight or something like that and was killed and they buried him in an unmarked grave down there. Hmm. Who knows? Hi, this is Michelle from Denham Springs, Louisiana. When I'm not out hunting the Rougarou, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. You know, the two people that Davis picks out, uh, their birthdays are way off. So the, the traditional Jean and Pierre Lafitte, they believed, uh, were about four years in age difference, of course, with Jean Lafitte being a younger. And it's typically believed based on their eyewitness and age and what they've also had told people, eyewitness accounts and stuff like that, that Lafitte, that is Jean Lafitte, was born around 1781 to 82. And Pierre, something like 1778 to 1779 or something like that. But, you know, the ones that Davis had picked out, they're uh, like 10 years apart from each other, the would-be Jean and Pierre Lafitte. Of course, that was their actual names. He found Jean and Pierre Lafitte brothers. And I guess that's good enough for evidence, right? Right. But they're actually 10 years apart from each other and about 10 to 15 years older than what history has as the Lafitte. Not only that, they don't even come from maritime background and stuff like that. So the Akamans that we believe were Jean and Pierre Lafitte. And again, it's ironic, coincidental evidence, perhaps. Who knows? Jean Baptiste Akaman was born in 1782, and Gaspard Akaman was born in 1779 right at the exact years that were supposed to be the two. Uh-huh. And so when you match that up with everything else, it's just an extra little thing added in there. So it sort of also goes into this island of uh, Mauritius, which is near Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. So John Nicholas Ottoman, the progenitor, when he was making these normal trips back and forth between France and Louisiana, he was bringing all of the sons that were of age minus Jean-Baptiste. And they were coming back and forth, even the younger brothers. We find that Jean-Baptiste was actually on the island of Mauritius during this time, growing up, where there was another family of Akamans out there who were involved in trade and commerce, maritime trade and commerce, a very lucrative business for them out there. Here's the deal. At that time, before, not switching gears, but we're switching personas. At that time, Jean Lafitte, prior to showing up to New Orleans in 1804, this is when he was in his late teens up to 21 years old, there are reports that he was actually conducting piracy in the Indian Ocean. And he was known as the scourge of the British commerce in the Indian Ocean. It's just ironic that it happens to be Jean-Baptiste Akamon not going back and forth to New Orleans with the rest of his family. He happens to be in the Indian Ocean, same time that Jean Lafitte is apparently being the scourge of the British commerce. Huh. in the Indian Ocean. So you see, there's all these little ditty things that start to add up 
We don't have concrete evidence, but again, where Lafitte is, so is Akamon. They're shadowing each other, and it's strange. It's too strange to be coincidental. Yeah. How long have you been working on this? Well, let's see. Uh, Jay and I really started looking into it probably in 2008. Uh And then we really got going probably about 2010. Chuck got involved. And that's when we actually said, you know, hey, you know, maybe we should try to make a TV show about it. Several times it got all the way up to the heads of the network. Uh, I mean, literally the president of Discovery twice, two different times, two different presidents of Discovery. It has made it all the way up through development and gone all the way to the top. Uh-huh. And normally it's either between us and another show and we've been turned down. For a while, we thought it had something to do with like, um, if he was on some kind of blacklist, you know, they didn't want to touch it. Yeah, multiple times that has taken place. Even uh, this last go around was history. Of course, we've changed it up a little bit and used Lafitte as our background and try to do just like a treasure hunting show. You know, that is, that is, of course, you know, from the recommendation of the production companies. Right. We get so close. And, you know, the thing is, with this Expedition Unknown deal, they called us. They were, um, you know, doing an episode on Lafitte. And I guess when they were trying to figure out what to do, they, they ran across somebody and said, um, well, hey, if you're going down there to do something on Lafitte, you need to get in touch with these guys right here. And, you know, they got resources and all that. They can help you out. And so, yeah, they called us up and uh, listened to everything. And they knew that we had a fix on where the ship was, his lost ship. And uh, they said, let's do it. Well, making that connecting thread from your early research on the the early life of Jean and Pierre down to the connections and it possibly being Jean-Baptiste Altaman and, and uh, Gaspard, do both of these family names run parallel throughout the entire Lafitte story, or do they kind of fade or, or, you know what I'm saying, cross-dissolve into one another? Or are there always two separate family storylines that you see going down all the way to Galveston and, and Jean Lafitte taking off? You know, I have to say, when it comes to the, uh, the two storylines, the two family lines, they always seem to run parallel. Hmm. We have actually tried to disprove our theory. We've looked at it from that angle, and we haven't been able to find anything that says, you know, they just can't be the Lafitte. That's the benchmark of good research is that you first try to disprove your theory, and if you can't, then you go from there. At least you've ruled that out. So, yeah, we applaud you for, you know, at least taking that step where you see a lot of people, they just want to believe it, and then they don't try to look at anything that disproves it. But I think that's also fascinating and, and maybe beefs up your theory that if they always kind of run parallel and don't really swap from one to the other or blend in, that it just could always be that maintained identity, that they were the same people. And everybody's kind of maintaining their family roles all the way throughout their family lines and family history. Just like you said, they are parallel. And the only time that there was a slip up was one little girl who happened to eyewitness them as the same people. Wow, yeah. That's where, it all, so we can look at all of these coincidences and wow, you know, it's close and it's parallel and this and that. But you go back to, there is still this random story that this little girl, I witnessed them being the same people. Right. 
And now, if there was just a story, you know, it was just passed down, oh, you know, we're descendants of the peach, yippee. And then there's no other evidence or any other parallels or anything to add up. That would be one thing. You know, and it would be like, eh, you know, everybody's got their story. Sure, sure. You know, or if it was flip-flop, we were just like, uh, you know, let's just see if we're related to Lafitte, you know, and we find, you know, these people doing this and these people doing that. Now, again, there's nothing there. But when you have these two things sort of, they do not cross, but they sort of come to a head a little bit. Right. They validate each other. This family story that was sent down, it was just a story of an eyewitness. They didn't know Jean-Baptiste had been in, or maybe they did, I don't know, but Jean-Baptiste had been in, you know, Mauritius, or, you know, they didn't know that one of these days we would be looking at exactly when their birth dates were. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was just an eyewitness account that was passed down. And then we have all of these parallels to add into the mix. Right. Like I said before, it's too strange to be coincidental. Now, I also don't want to take away from anybody else, you know, who has a legitimate claim to being a Lafitte descendant. And you know, to be honest with you, we're actually, in technicality, we're not Lafitte descendants. We're descendants of Lafitte's brothers, who was also involved in all that stuff. But still, the story is our weight to bear, so to speak. It was The story was passed down to us, and we're the ones who did the research. We're the ones who have... Um, come up with a theory, which I think is a very sound theory. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love your confidence in it. Yeah. And most, uh, you know, as, as Scott was saying earlier, you know, every family's got some loose connection. Uh, you know, my own family were supposedly related by marriage to General Robert E. Lee. You can trace that back and my, my grandfather has, but those are a little more solid with some people, like you said, with that are some notables. Like I would imagine it would be easier to trace Governor Claiborne's family line, because these are people who don't mind being in the public record for authentic reasons. And when you have somebody who's operating on the margins of legality and, and fully crossing that line, of, of course, uh, there's going to be some shadowy areas there. I did want to ask one other question, and this is very important to me, both Forrest and I, is when the things that we take seriously at our show, because we are always talking about legendary people. And in some cases, it's more legend than reality. In other cases, it's the other way around. But we put a lot of stock in what the elder members of people's families think. So I'm, I'm curious with you, with your oldest living relatives, what is their personal opinion about the veracity of the connection? Like, what is their attitude about it? There, there was a brief shot, I think, was it maybe of your father and the Expedition Unknown? But they, you know, he didn't say a whole lot about it. So I'm just curious what the uh, position is of the older members of your family. They're all passed on now. Uh, me, Chuck, and Jay are the you guys <laughs> elders are. of the family, but um, they believed it. And they believed it. it. My grandmother, my father's mother, and you know, and ironic enough, also, I, I don't know if it's ironic or not, but it was passed down only through women leading up from Adel Ottoman all the way down to my grandmother, where it was passed on to us. Finally, story given to males. Uh-huh. I don't know if that's strange or not, but... They kept it a secret from the men in the family? Yeah, they didn't exactly keep it a secret, but I don't think they dove into it uh-huh. with them. Right. Uh, i would be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure. I, they may have kept it a secret, or because you got to understand, for a long time, they probably had a little fear over their lives. Right. 
that's again we were talking about how they were probably well respected and you know pretty powerful back in those times sure when the whole thing came crumbling down you never know who was their enemy anymore and not only that they were you know they kept this uh you know charade up for quite a long time and i would imagine that they would have uh wanted to keep it more of a secret right so it's about self-preservation correct and we we believe that they didn't tell everybody because we've asked you know, our cousins who branched off that we still know personally today. We happen to know all our cousins were one of those families. Yeah. <laughs> but they didn't get that story when they were growing up. They didn't know. Okay. So we do believe they at least only passed it down through chosen individuals in the family. Now, my grandmother, Joy Six, my dad's mother, she's who we heard it from. Now, my great grandmother, her mother, was still alive when I was a a little kid, but I don't remember too much. I was so young that the only memory that I have is that she liked to give people the middle finger. <laughs> uh, but I didn't hear the story from her or heard it from my grandmother. And maybe that was what they were doing, you know? Yeah. Maybe my grandmother finally chose to pass it to us. I don't know. That woman, my great-grandmother, she is the one, if you, if you looked in the Expedition Unknown episode, when we were pointing out on that old family photo. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. When we were pointing out Anita Rossi. Okay. Her name was Anita Rossi, but her grandmother was Adel Akaman, who was the eyewitness to Lafitte. And so out of all those children that were sitting there on that porch, Adel chose my great grandmother to pass a story down to not oh. even her children. To one of her grandchildren. Yeah, because she has choices with a big family like that. You can pick the person that you feel like it needs to continue, but maybe let's not tell everybody, but we've got to pass this down. Well, not better the person who's going to give the middle finger to everybody, right? <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say it, no offense or nothing, but it's almost kind of silly to ask me what are their feelings about it or what is their you know, belief about it. Yeah. It, it's silly because they knew it. It wasn't even a belief. It was right. more like a knowledge. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's yeah. difficult to answer that question. It, it's just there. It was just a part of them. That's actually the answer I was looking for. Well, let's talk about Lafitte's time in Galveston. We've covered already in part one a little bit of his history there, but let's get to the part where it was time for him to leave and those circumstances and what you think happened with him and the pride and, and the other vessels that he might have had. When he decided, like, I, I got to torch the place and, and head out of here, or maybe even use that as a cover-up, like, what were his final end days there in Galveston? Like, what do you think happened, according to your family research, and, and why he did what he did, and, and how did he get out of there? Because, obviously, I'm sure he had an exit plan, I guess is what I'm, you know, what we're getting at, is that he he must have thought about this if he had to hightail it out of there, because things are getting kind of dodgy. Uh, what do you think that plan is, and how did he do it? So... As we get closer to, or as we get into Galveston, let me say, our family connection that is matching up the Lafitte's to Akron becomes a lot more hazy because on Galveston, Lafitte was the government. The parallels sort of end after New Orleans. Now that's, you know, Akron wise. Lafitte, who we also thought was Jean Baptiste Akron. Okay, so took control over Galveston Island and Galveston Bay. Now, you know, as they got to Galveston as well, it 
became more piracy and less privateering. He's living, I guess, more towards the Wild West, if there's a way to describe that a little bit. But even though it wasn't U.S. territory, he was still making a lot of governments angry, the Spanish, the English, and uh, eventually U.S. government did not like them pirating down there, even though they weren't targeting American ships, they still didn't like it. But what happened was apparently the story, you know, where there's, uh, there's some written accounts of this, but some of Lafitte's men actually pirated a, a U.S. ship, one or two of them, and actually ended up killing a few of them. Well, this word got back around to the U.S. government, and they had had enough. So even though Lafitte apparently hung these captains and the, the perpetrators that did this, because he told them, do not attack American ships, they sent a, a little U.S. Navy envoy down to make contact with him and address him. Now, this is where we do have some documented evidence that is actual uh, legit documents is when uh, I believe the commander was Lieutenant Kearney. He is the one who showed up in Galveston, made contact with Lafitte. They had dinner over a couple of nights. Uh, they didn't have dinner over a couple of nights. They had a couple of dinners to discuss it. It's not like they, you know, snuggled up together or anything. But <laughs> um, they discussed what was going on there, and Kearney told him the U.S. is not going to allow you to stay here any longer. There was no battle. There was nothing going on. There were, it was a discussion. And he said, look, you're going to have to pack up and leave, or the U.S. Navy is going to send vessels down here and just destroy it. They'd rather not, but you know, that's the alternative. Lafitte agreed, and that is when he torched, you know, the majority of the buildings on the island, and they sailed away. Kearney, I witnessed this. So that's another thing he did, was he also eyewitnessed the pride while he was there. And it was a, what he described was a three-masted schooner, uh, which I guess at that time was not something too common. A schooner is, you know, around 65 to 75 foot long. I guess normally back in those days, they not only had two masts, but this one had three masts built for speed. His other eyewitness was that it was, or description was that it was black and it was high in the front and low in the back. And his exact words were the bow ideal for a pirate. When I read or listen to those words, I can almost see the ship in my mind, you know. Yeah. I could imagine a real pirate ship made for speed, black from the pitch and tar, so that's harder to spot, you know. Yeah. It's very romantic almost, sort of, to put it into words. Yeah. But anyways, he watched Lafitte sail away. Now, there are other reports. I don't know where this came from because that is actual documented evidence. Um, there are other reports that the Navy actually came to throw him out and how the ship was scuttled up in the lake up in North Galveston Bay was he was running from them. But again, it doesn't really match up with documented evidence unless he left and came back. Now, if that's the truth, then you would have thought that the naval, there would be some other evidence that the Navy came back. But as far as we know, the only time they came was with Lieutenant Kearney, who 
told them to leave. We do know the area and, you know, you'll have to forgive me. I cannot disclose the actual name of the lake. No, you know, I noticed that you didn't do that on Expedition Unknown. And I had in here in my questions to ask you about that, but kind of figured that you were, you know, it makes sense not to do that. <laughs> I was surprised yeah. you showed a map in the show. So, well, uh, it was not a real map. Okay, good. That's good. <laughs> I'm proud of you. <laughs> uh, yeah. And in fact, if you notice, whenever on the show, we were constrained, heavily constrained by the Army Corps of Engineers. Okay. Uh, they would not allow us to disclose any of that stuff. Okay, so when it comes to that area up there, it was a river that we know that Lafitte used all the rivers in New Orleans. Now, here we are, we're painting a profile in the MO again. Yeah. Okay? In New Orleans, how did they get their goods up into Louisiana to sell, to do the trading, black markets and all that stuff? They used the rivers, best way of carrying goods for trade. Well, again, here we are, we have again in Galveston, is using these bayous and rivers to transport goods up. Except this time, you know, it's less civilized. There were some settlements, but the ship lies in one of the exact rivers that he used for trade, or that is in a lake off of one of the rivers. There were also eyewitness reports. There were some settlers in that area who eyewitnessed Lafitte using that, or at least they could see that it was somebody's pirate ship you know, was uh, using these little lakes. Now, my opinion is Lafitte actually left the way that the document evidence has actually left. And I believe it was around like 1821. I believe he actually went somewhere for a little while. He probably, you know, you never know. He might've, he might've gone to Cuba. That might be the, uh, the startup of some of these legends. He might've actually gone and did a little time down in the Yucatan. But again, if Lafitte died in the Yucatan, or if Lafitte died in Cuba, why is a ship back in Galveston Bay? Mm-hmm. So I believe that he actually did leave and go somewhere, but that he must have come back. Now, again, we don't 100% know if that's Lafitte's ship. We'll get to that in a minute. But I believe he must have come back years later after the threat of naval retaliation or anything was gone. Now, those rivers and these lakes up in here this is a drainage basin. The Galveston Bay is a drainage basin, and it's swampy. These lakes and rivers, they move very fast, faster than you would think. This is my opinion. I bet he's got it stuck on accident. Uh, okay. But, again, the scuttling intentionally on purpose, that would match up more with you know being chased up in there or running from the Navy. But, again, we would have other evidence to back that up. The Navy would have said, oh, yeah, you know, there would be records. Oh, yeah, we chased feet up in there. Had to go back down there because we wouldn't leave, yada, yada, whatever the, whatever the story would be. But we don't have that. But I don't think it was intentional. I think it was definitely an accident. The lake uh, was probably not a lake back then. I mean, obviously, he had to get the boat into it, so it must have been connected to the river. So I, I'm guessing that based on what you're saying, that the landscape and the path of the rivers and the and the bodies of water is, is geographically speaking, probably changes fairly rapidly, I would imagine. Yeah, I'm guessing I wasn't quite as clear. Sometimes I ramble on a little bit, but no, the <laughs> it was a lake. Okay. It was a lake. It's actually shrunk a lot. And the river feeds into it and feeds out of it then? Yes. Okay. So there is, the river makes a large bend. It's like a big U. Yes. On the north side, an estuary or a 
pass or whatever you want to call it comes off and fed this large lake. Okay. Then it actually went back into the river. Okay. Now it has changed dramatically. It's much, much, much smaller. Uh, we had to do big time investigatory work on it. Uh, I went back and found all the surveys and maps uh, all the way back to 1830 something. And what we did is I took all of them and I matched them up with a current topographical map and you can see the landscape, the, um, the elevations. Uh-huh. And you can see where that lake was, the change in the trees, where the trees change, where the swamp begins and ends. You, then you can take the next one, which was in the 1860s, which was actually a union survey that was done down there. You take that map and you can see where it was then. And then there was one in like 1890. And you can see there, and you can see how the lake has shrunk. And where the ship lies right now is the reason why that one large lake has now turned into two. It was the sandbar. It was the uh-huh. catalyst that created the sandbar to separate the one lake into two. Right, which supports your theory of accidental beaching. Correct. Yeah. It got shallow. It was something that he normally used and was comfortable with and got it stuck. In the Expedition Unknown, there was an allusion to two stories one about Josephine Joseph being on a picnic in 1856. And then also there was another story. And it was just right. one half of a sentence that made the air, but something about in 1890, somebody walked on the deck. Can you elaborate on those two stories a little bit? Sure. Josephine Joseph. No, oh, that's a name, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> She's a mind, mind, baby. <laughs> Her family lived in that area. And from what we understand, they, I, I mean, I don't know how you would term it, but they weren't, exactly settlers they were more they probably were wealthy you Mm -hmm. know and yes they were out there on a picnic so you know she wrote regularly apparently whether it's letters to someone or actually in her journal but you know we dug this stuff up she was having a picnic on the lake and actually saw this boat out there i guess it was i can't remember the exact details i've got it somewhere in all my documents but yeah, she eyewitnessed it in a more pristine condition than it was in the 1890 story. Now, what she noticed was that it was out in the middle of the lake. She gave some specific details about the location from what she could see from the other side of the lake. But anyways, yeah, it was a very simple eyewitness account. It wasn't something that was anything more than that as far as I understand. I don't even think she knew what ships were, you know what I'm saying, as far as like a schooner or whatever. Right. Know? Because she gave no de- she gave no details of that. Now the 1890, these were the Shermans who actually bought land and settled on the lake. In fact, their descendants are still there. The guy that actually wrote the eyewitness account it was his grandfather that took him out there on the lake. And at that point in time, it was just barely covered over with sand, huh. and they could walk on the top of it. And the eyewitness report says that they actually kick some of the sand away and you can see the wood planks. Wow. Yeah. And so you can make out the outline that there was something there, but it wasn't visible unless you dug a little bit and there were no masks or anything. That stuff had long eroded away. And I'm sure we've had, they'd had several hurricanes in between then. But um, yeah, at that point in time, it was the last 
eyewitness accounts of actually having seen the shift in the flesh. What led you to even think about looking in this area? And what was the eureka moment for you guys? Like, oh my God, we just found this eyewitness story and or these two stories. This is our best target. This is the best, the thing that we should be focusing our energy on. When, when did that happen? Well, first of all, we had grown up hearing stories from our great uncle and my dad who would take us fishing out there on those lakes and in those rivers. And they would actually point out that somewhere in there is one of your ancestors' ships or something like that. I remember them telling us that. Mm-hmm. And we never really made much of it at that time. And my grandmother would talk to us about it and tell us these stories. And so it would get us all hopped up, you know, and put on eye patches and make cardboard <laughs> swords and fight and stuff like that. But it was older that we sort of got adventurous you know, back in between 2008 and 2010. And it was sort of like a side quest. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's probably nothing on the ship that's going to prove it. it. It's not like we're going to open it up and there's like a big plaque that says, Ataman was Lafitte. You know, yeah. that's just not going to happen. But it was uh, just kind of a side thing. You know, it was interesting. It's right in our backyard. It's a pirate ship. Well, who wouldn't want to go after that? So we would make regular trips out there. And we did some research of, you know, eyewitness accounts, one from 1890. And he gave specific stuff like this old man, you know, he said that he could make out where the ship is using, this is his words, two shell banks as bearings. Uh-huh. But where was he looking at the two shell banks from? So we would, we would take that piece of evidence and go out there and search around the edge and try to find a shell bank. And there's shells all over that damn thing. Right. Okay. So yeah. what, what shell banks he was talking about, we did find more in one area, which was on the north side, which is, you know, closer to where we thought it may be. And then there was another one like that there was a spike dug into one of the oak trees, one of the only oak trees out there, a big railroad spike dug into it. So we'd go out there with a metal detector. Oh, really? Yeah. Apparently somebody who had found it before, um, you know, they said that that's how they marked it. Well, you know, we got this grand idea. We're like, why don't we take a metal detector out there and just start metal detecting the trees? Well, that didn't really pan out because uh, I'm here to tell you right now, walking up in those woods, because, again, we knew that the lake had changed a little bit, but we didn't know how much at that time. So I'm telling you, it's jungle out there. Uh-huh. And there's alligators and there is boars and anything that will get you. So we did that for a little while, and then we decided, no, we're going to need another path. So our eureka moment was, I mean, we had suspicions about where it was. And we'd actually gone out there several other times, failed attempts to just try to, I think one time we even rented a land magnetometer. And I'm here to tell you that was a waste because we didn't know what the hell we were doing. (laughs) Carrying this big ass thing and screens and buttons and I mean, the thing was, it was, it was you know, it was reading. Wee, wee, wee. I, I didn't know what it was doing. So. <laughs> that sounds like something that happened to me. Yeah, no, we're technically challenged on that front. But the actual eureka moment was, I remember I had, I wanted an older map, and it was that 1862 Union Survey map that I've, that I've found. And I got a copy of that from Land Historical land office in Austin or something kind of expensive. I only needed it for one little square inch on the, on that map. You know, it cost so much and all I needed was a you know, little bitty old portion. But from that little bitty thing, I managed to see 
what the lake looked like then and looked like now. And it hit me right when I, you know, when I looked at it and at first I didn't really make too much of it. But then I was looking at current topographical map and I looked at that and I was like, wait a minute, that thing has changed so much. And I wonder, it just sort of hit me. I wonder if it's actually under land. And, you know, my brother, he didn't believe me at first and all that. So I set out, I mean, I looked at, I searched far and wide for everything of that area that was anything. And there was an earlier survey, there was that one, and like three or four after. There was even some aerial photos. And that's where I took it. I took all that stuff and I started matching them up. And you could see that something had caused, you know, that larger lake to change, to split in half somewhere around the 1830s. And it just kind of dawned on me. I was like, I, I, at that point in time, I even asked my dad, I said, you know, when we're, cause we, we take regular fishing trips and, or we did, that is fishing trips and camping trips out on the Gulf of Mexico. We actually go down on the beach somewhere, secluded way down somewhere. And there's driftwood that comes up. And sometimes these gigantic trees are washed ashore, right? But they get stuck, their roots and all that are intact. Of course, there's no leaves on them. Probably been drifting out there for years. But they they wash up on shore and they kind of get stuck, you know, about 100 or 200 feet offshore. But they create huge sandbars right there. And I asked my dad, I said, I showed him what I had. I said, if a ship got stuck out in the middle of that thing, can it create a sandbar? He said, you're damn straight. Right. What happened was in the end, I knew it right then. I knew exactly the area it was going to be in. I just felt it. Jay and Chuck didn't even believe me that much. And so when the Expedition Unknown episode came on, they sent a pre-team down to look at the area. You know, I can't remember what they call that now, pre-production or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Look at the area and set everything up. We discussed all matters. But the important thing was, what about where the ship actually is? How are we going to do this? We're going to hire a some professionals to make sure the magnetometer survey is done correctly. Where do you want them to look? And I said, well, and we got out the current map. And I said, this area right here, the survey team, big time oil company survey team, called me up and wanted me to do it on Google Maps. So I did a thing on Google Maps. And then they ended up sending people out to have us take them out there and just show them the area. Because I told them, I said, man, this stuff is jungle, dude. You got to watch out. So they came out and I took them exactly to the spot where I wanted them to start and right in the middle. And he goes, you think the ship is under our feet right now? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And this is a survey guy. He's been doing this just for like 20 <laughs> years, 30 years, maybe. He's got degrees in this stuff. He goes, there's no way. He goes, there's no way the lake has changed that much if there's a 70-foot ship under our feet. I said, okay, all right. Well, I want you to do a land magnetometer survey on this whole area right here. And he, go, and he goes, well, we're going to survey the lake too. We're going to pull the water magnetometer behind the boat. We're going to survey the whole lake. I said, I, I even told him, I said, go ahead, waste your time. Fine with me. He was being kind of ornery with me. He goes, man, you got to waste our time. There's no way it's under, <laughs> it's under land. I said, okay, fine. They did the survey like a week later. Now he called me up and he apologized. He said, man, I'm sorry. I had no idea that something could change that much. I said, I told you. And sure enough, right where I told them to start looking is where they got the large magnetometer survey. And he said, it looks like it's about... 15 to 20 feet under the mud. And from the large hit, it has to be somewhere between, you know, 60 to like 90 feet long. Looking at the area, 
there's no way that it could be any other structure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like somebody built a pier. Yeah, you just answered one of my questions that I already had, what I was going to ask you. Were there ever piers, there docks, other buildings, like, for trading or anything else out that way? No, not in that lake. No, there was nothing. Nothing made sense. And then, of course, when you match up that the ship was eyewitnessed sticking out there in 1850s, as the lake is actually changing, you know, an eyewitness somewhere in between, it kind of makes sense that that's at least a ship. Is it Lafitte's ship? We don't know. But is it the ship of legend? Yes. Now, this is before Expedition Unknown and, and Josh Gates gets there. You've already d- made some preliminary findings then with the magnetometer. Yes. Yeah, so we had to do a preliminary survey on it. Mm-hmm because we were limited on time for when uh, they were going to be here. Right, right. And that survey took them several days. Yeah, they, what they did is they did a quick survey to sort of pinpoint it. And then when the actual team, Josh Gates and all of them got out here, we did a little bit more of an in-depth survey on it. But yeah, we knew before Josh Gates got there the general location where it was going to be. Yeah, of course. Uh, you you can't uh, spend valuable show production time poking around just trying to find it in the first place. But that was a pretty amazing find. Had you used your contraption there, which is a little bit of a uh, uh, water pressure hooked up to a generator? Uh, you know, we covered uh, Oak Island, and I'm sure you've probably heard that story. And you know, people trying to get uh, results there, and and just with your device, you've pulled up something. You know, again, that probably should not be down. 10, 15, 20 feet, at least a piece of wood that does look a little bit charred and it looks like it had a square nail adjacent to it at least. And yeah, they were in that same area. So yeah, the contraption, I had heard of something similar being used for something else, not going quite so deep. Mm -hmm. I sort of borrowed that idea and I was like, okay, so if I can manage to use high water pressure as a probe, to get down to at least probe something so I could find the edge of something so I could touch something and then perhaps also a pipe so that I could maybe get a sample of something. That was the dream that I started out with. And um, I knew we were working out in the middle of nowhere. There's no outlets, you know, there's no one ten, you know, bolt out there. Mm-hmm. So I had to sort of invent everything. It got yeah. to making the probe. And then I was like, wait, in order to have the probe, I need, uh, water. So uh, in order to have water, I need a sump pump. And the sump mm-hmm. pump's got to be powered by 110 and then this and that, you know, just kind of kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. <laughs> and then it got to the point where I was like, okay, well, how am I going to suck something out of there? And yeah. I found this, you know, big ass pump to do. And then I'm like, well, wait a minute, you can't just start sucking stuff out. We've got to have a way to catch it, you know? <laughs> so it just finally, it all sort of came to fruition and it worked. Hi, I'm Joe Rakowski, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. The fact that you pulled up the wood and the nail on Expedition Unknown, a lot of times they don't find anything, just like any show like that. Because, you know, it's like you said, they don't have a lot of time to spend. They come, they check out a mystery, they get all the stories. 
they dig around in the mud and, you know, they come up with something and it's not nearly as conclusive or interesting as what you guys found. That actually happened as they were there, that you had not recovered anything similar to that prior to then? I have to be honest with you, yes. We had not recovered anything before that time. So that must have been a pretty exciting moment. It was. We probably shot that about five times or more. So it, it diminished yeah. my, my excitement for being down <laughs> on my knees and all of that kept diminishing. <laughs> sure. yeah. But yes, it was very exciting. But, you know, also, I see your point. Like, you know, most of the times this show, it's not as interesting or you don't ever come up with something that's groundbreaking. And the thing is, right. he didn't have the Hicks boys before us. We're just super awesome. Yeah. And this is what we do. (laughs) Well, okay. So that brings the next question. This must have been, uh, you know, two or three years ago now, considering that episode, I think it ran in 2018. What has happened since then in the intervening time? Have you done any, have you recovered anything else? Have you tested what you brought up? Where are you guys at now? So we're kind of at this little, I I don't know how to put it in words, but we're at this point to where, we're trying to get our own show about Lafitte. And I, mm-hmm. I mentioned it earlier. And actually, over the, there's been some developments over the last couple of months and especially the last couple of weeks, even with all of this coronavirus stuff going on. But the corona vacay is what I like to call it. <laughs> right. So we haven't delved too much into trying to go any further with the ship, you know, because we kind of want it to be authentic. Josh Gates Expedition Unknown, they had the wood sample and the nail sent off to a lab. A lab, yeah, yeah. to have it tested. Never heard back about it. I don't even know if it actually made it to the lab. Oh, geez. Hmm. They got to keep it? Yeah, they took that. Earlier, you mentioned that when you were working with Expedition Unknown, that the Army Corps of Engineers was particularly interested in what you were doing and maybe restricting you. Are they concerned about flooding up there or destabilizing the lake somehow? Or what's their stake in all this? We never got a direct answer on what their thinking is or their motive is for preventing us. Um, We do know this. The Army Corps of Engineers does own all of that property, that and I can't remember their term for it. It's something like the Galveston wetland something or whatever. What they did was a few years ago, they built some locks to control the water flow, mm-hmm. really to try to prevent the lakes and rivers from moving too much. It's a dam and it's not a dam. I don't know too much about locks versus dams, right. but that's what they built and they own all that property. Well, I do know this. They don't want the press coverage on it and they don't want people going out there trying to dig it up right probably because they do own it more than likely they don't want people trampling around out there and it might also have something to do with messing with flooding or changing the the landscape you know right as of right now there's no permission to do anything else it's hard to even get a word in with them is it fresh water uh brackish uh-huh. it's fresh but it's salt does come in it depends on the tides and the time of year and how much rain and all that sure you will find you know oyster shells up in there so your current official on the record position about this is that you don't know what happened to what got pulled up on the show and you guys are still exploring the wreckage and trying to take next steps with regard to uh, excavating it further or researching it further. 
Uh, yes, absolutely. We are currently trying to see, because of course, some of the individuals like like us, it's difficult to get in with Army Corps of Engineers. Yeah, it's going to take production company network to try to, or at least somebody with some fat pockets, you know, to try to persuade uh, them to at least let us do some poking around or digging. We would love nothing more than to get permission to excavate that thing and actually, you know, have a little warehouse museum built for it and have that thing preserved inside, you know, go inside and take a look at the Jean Lafitte's pirate ship. That would be completely awesome. Do you think there was any treasure aboard, or do you think he probably cleared it out after it beached? Or I would imagine that accidental or not, uh, I would imagine that he would have probably taken anything most of value. I mean, is there stuff in it? Yeah, probably. Uh, is there anything completely monetarily value-wise? Maybe. It's also been there for a long time, you know, and yeah. even if he didn't, somebody else probably did come along and, you know, have their way with it. Maybe, maybe not. We like to say the truth is the treasure. Now that's that, but legend has it that there is a thousand page manuscript, a journal of the feats, like his boat journal, uh, left on there. And I don't know what this is, but five bear skins of gold. I don't know what a bear skin is, but it has mm-hmm. gold in it. Huh. Apparently it's in there. <laughs> Interesting. But that's legend. It was actually first written down by the E.H. Sherman, the gentleman that uh, made the eyewitness account in 1890. Well, regarding that treasure, uh, do you and your family have any personal theories about where, you know, treasure may have been offloaded or buried nearby for access? Uh what do you think happened other than if, you know, if it didn't remain on the ship, because if the ship did get scuttled or, or stuck there, obviously they're probably going to want to take some of that off as much as they can and, and probably want, not want to travel too far with it. So uh, do you have any personal theories? I kind of say, no, I don't. That's a short answer. But I yeah. don't really even want to think about it. There are lots of theories out there. Uh, you know, about what might have happened to not just that gold or anything valuable on that ship, but Jean Lafitte's gold just in general. If there was ever any, I'm sure there was, but you know, who knows? There's lots of stories and theories and eyewitness accounts to different things. Uh, now, as concerning the ship itself, uh, who knows? Yeah. I do know this. Near where the ship uh, was found, there in the lake, or that is actually under land, about 100 yards or so from the ship, there is another smaller but equally strong magnetic hit. Mm. And so you never know. There could be something there. I try to avoid thinking about where he might have buried the treasure because I don't want to drive myself crazy, you know. (laughs) Right. I always like to think about it that, hey, if we happen upon something, great. Just wonderful if that were to happen. But outside of that, I I don't really think about it too much. What is the law in Texas if you were to find something? What does it say about that? I believe that they take all of it minus some kind of fee. Mm -hmm. And what uh, Texas does, I believe they put it into the educational system. 
Now, that's Texas. Mm-hmm. I don't know about Army Corps of Engineer Lane. So it's anyone's guess on what the U.S. would want to do with it. Maybe a first step, though. Uh, where is the that rumored manuscript supposed to lie? Is that supposed to be on the ship itself, or is that somewhere else? No, that's supposed to be aboard the ship, along with the bearskins and right. gold. <laughs> that would be amazing <laughs> to find. Yeah, yeah, it would. That would be amazing. And in fact, that was, and especially you guys out of L.A. and dealing with this kind of stuff, you know how production companies can repackage an idea and yeah. try to resell it. Well, uh, we've tried all things with feet. Believe me, you know, trying to figure out who he exactly was all over the place to this to that. One of them that we did with Discovery was all about the excavation of the ship. I believe at that time, the other show that actually got accepted was Cooper's Treasure for Discovery. I don't know if you know about that show. That name is familiar to me, but I don't know. I can't think. I can't. Yeah, about the that. astronaut who. The astronaut who marked dark. Yeah, Gordo Cooper, the uh, astronaut uh, from the Apollo missions. And apparently he would take uh, mapping photographs during his missions. And he discovered something, didn't he, uh, on one of the maps? I don't think he actually discovered anything, but he right. he just would mark them down. And I think he might have actually looked on some maps to see that there was elevation changes in certain spots or something like that. But he passed that stuff down to... Uh, you know, a family friend, I guess a, a kid that he felt was like his son, like that he passed that stuff onto, and it was that guy who was chasing Cooper's treasure. So, anyways, our show and that show were up to the president of Discovery, or the, uh, that is maybe president of whoever decides which one goes, and they chose Cooper's treasure show over ours. Hmm. As far as I know, they haven't found anything. They should have gone with us. Yeah, you actually have some evidence. <laughs> yeah, hey, you know, expedition unknown. We found it. You know? <laughs> but um, so anyways, that's what we're trying to do right now. That's just a piece of it, though. We don't want to focus on the ship. Right. We really want to really get an in-depth look at exactly what Lafitte was up to. Who was Lafitte? Why did he operate this way? And was there something even more beyond history shows that Lafitte was this pirate who made all the decisions and did all this stuff. And he was sort of like King of Barataria, which I think they called him that for, you know, at some point in time, but yeah, perhaps is there something a little bit deeper? He might go from actual anti-hero to actually being a hero that just had the, he had to use the means to get to the ends. So that's what I want to know. Somebody who's in my ancestral history, I want to know what he had going on there. You know, aside from getting that show, do you have any uh, other, like you said, side projects going on or or things that are kind of a, a part of this that are being extended? Or is this the main focus, just working on this and getting some kind of show going to bring up the ship or or follow out the rest of the, uh, the Lafitte story? We are definitely driven at looking deeper and solving what's going on with Lafitte here, especially yeah. with our, our family connection, you know, and I hate to say this, but we want to sort of use a TV show right, to get what we need because, you know, uh, we don't make enough money to go trampling around the world uh, doing all of these things. But if a show is what helps to make it happen, then that's what we need. And of course it wouldn't want to be on TV. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we're constantly trying to drive in that direction and it seems 
that we're always getting closer. Every time we get a little bit closer and we're just almost there, something is just out of place. You know, you see this such a touchy subject that, you know, we're having difficulty getting Lafitte itself sold that we're expanding out into other things like it could be just a general salvage show. That was the last thing we were working on with history. Mm -hmm. It was basically a salvage show or a underwater anomalies and things. And so what we were trying to do, we were willing to go with that in order to get our foot in the door. Mm-hmm. And once we got a little bit of notoriety behind us, or I don't even know if that's a correct word to use there. But anyways, get some stuff behind us and get some viewership and get people wanting to see us. We can double back and say, let's get some stuff done on this defeat. Uh, that that might actually be the driving force, people wanting to see us on TV. And, you know, we entertain people no matter what we do. And then now we're like, okay, let's knock out this defeat zone. So we're willing to take really any avenue that we can. And I guarantee you we're going to be entertaining no matter what we do. Well, man, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it. I know our listeners are going to love hearing your story, what you've got going on. I would hope that you'll stay in touch with us or reach back out with us if you have any developments on the journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that uh, Jay, I know he's setting up a Facebook page or, you know, connected in with YouTube or whatever Mm -hmm. else. And what we're going to start doing is posting some regular videos of our little adventures, whether, you know, whether it's TV show or not, just when we go back out yeah. and looking at whatever, posting those up there. And also we shot a few funny videos um, <laughs> that people might be interested in seeing. I know that on Facebook, he's J Hicks Jones, of course, mm-hmm. Hicks is H-I-X. And if people want to check out that for right now, he is posting some of our, couple of our funny videos up there and you can always request for more because he has a ton of them (laughs) yeah there you go soon there will be something else up to watch our adventures it's that sense of spirit uh for discovery and drive that's how things get discovered uh from the beginning of time till now that's because if you didn't have that nobody'd be poking around in the in the swamp you know so it, it takes that quest you know and and uh and it takes a drive like uh you and your family there to get stuff done and otherwise it's just by accident and uh, if you leave it to that you'll you're going to rarely discover stuff so uh our hats off to you Thank you, and uh, I salute y'all for uh, wanting to talk to a bum like me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for coming on. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, we'll definitely stay in touch uh, and keep you guys updated. Awesome. I never thought we would get uh, such a great interview out of somebody we just met after a cold contact on Facebook <laughs> just a day or well, two earlier. No, uh, Cody's a really downer, the very nice guy. Those guys sound like so much fun. I would love to go out exploring and, and searching for stuff with them. Uh, maybe we will one day, but it does sound like not only do they have the moxie to go out in the field and actually look for stuff and have uh, good techniques and, and ideas about it, but I love that they love history and they want answers and they do their research. And that's also how you find stuff. We had a few extra questions for them that we're going to come back to here in a minute. But before we do that, we wanted to turn the page as we're getting towards the end of our series here and talk a little bit about some of the ghost stories and uh, haunted and paranormal legends that are affiliated with Jean Lafitte. The stories from here on out get a little spooky. And I think Dobie sets us up pretty well in this uh, couple of sentences here. 
probably the earth was never visited by a more extravagant or more uneasy ghost than the ghost of Lafitte. Sometimes this ghost strains with all the agony of a purgatoried soul to get its treasure removed and put to the uses of virtue. Again, the ghost, or perhaps it is the ghost of some man slain and buried over the treasure, repulses the most daring and godless prospectors as they come near the object of their search. So it kind of leads into this tale of this lawyer. He doesn't really go on, uh, Doby doesn't really go on to explain who it is, but this Texas lawyer who he describes as very hard-headed, very upright, no-nonsense kind of guy, was somehow getting messages from Lafitte's ghost. But the reason to mention this, I think, was the nature and what he says is that the lack of coherence in the messages, as Doby says, revealed plainly enough what torture the spirit was suffering. But it reminded me of so many spirit communications that people have claimed to have had. Yeah. They're jumbled. They're all over the place. They don't make a, a whole lot of sense. It's It doesn't translate well from the other side. Yeah, and that could be about the delivery method from what we've learned about the Estes method and that sort of thing. More about that than it is about necessarily implying that the messenger is having an issue, any other issue more than communicating. There is definitely a paranormal and downright scary aspect to Lafitte's treasure here. Uh, one of them, I think, is one of the better stories that we've read has to do with a gentleman named Marion Meredith. And he has, or used to have, quite a remarkable chart that he got from a neighbor woman who was a widow whose husband got it from a Hispanic woman, a Mexican woman, and gave it to her husband for some exchange there. And as Dobie says, this map is a widow maker. Yeah, I want to read from this section. This is from section 4831 in the Kindle edition anyway. And also, uh, what page are you on there in the hardcover? 326. 326. Again, this is uh, J. Frank Doby's book, mm. Coronado's Children, Tales of Lost Mines and Buried Treasures of the Southwest. It called for a tree with a chain about it, somewhere near the mouth of the Neches River. According to the history that went with the chart, some of Lafitte's men had their ship cabled to the tree and had just finished planting a fine wad of loot nearby when they were jumped by a Spanish galleon. They cut their hawser and got away only to be bombarded to the bottom of the ocean. One man alone survived, the man that handed down the chart. Marion Meredith's neighbor, who finally came into possession of this chart, felt so sure of finding the treasure that he would trust no one to go with him in search of it. Without trouble, he found the tree in the chain, then he stepped directly to the spot at which he was to dig. After he shoveled down a few feet, some unseen power seized him. At least his subsequent gesticulations were interpreted to indicate as much. When he reached home, his organs of speech were paralyzed, and in less than a week, he was dead. As soon as Meredith got hold of the chart from the widow of the late searcher, he took in as partner a rough old character by the name of Clausen. The two men found the tree with the chain about it, a rather rusty chain. At the spot where the chart called for the treasure to be, they found a hole already started. Near at hand were some decayed tools. They had not dug down very far before they came to a skeleton. They carefully removed it and laid it out on the bank. As the hole got deeper, only one man at a time could work in it. It was Clausen's turn to dig and Meredith was peering down from above, expecting every minute to see a shovel full of doubloons pitched up. When all at once, Clausen gave a wild leap for the surface. His face was haggard. His eyes had the look of the haunted. When he spoke, his voice was terror itself. Quote, Come, for God's sake, let's get away from this place, he half whispered, half shrieked, clutching Meredith's arm in a vice-like grip. 
What's the matter? What have you seen? demanded Meredith, who had seen nothing. I have seen hell and its horrors. Come away from here, I tell you. And Clausen pulled so powerfully, and his terror was so contagious that they left without even taking their tools. Clausen would never make explanation. He only begged Meredith, as he valued his life, never to dig at that place again. In time, Meredith returned to get his tools. He found the skeleton back inside the hole out of which he and Clausen had so carefully taken it. He covered it up, shoveling in sand and shell until the sink was level. Then he came away, never to go back. He had absolute confidence in Clausen's judgment. Long afterwards, he met Clausen in Beaumont and asked him again for an explanation. For God's sake, Clausen replied, never ask me about that matter again. It has haunted me all these years. So there's that story, which I, you know, I see two angles on that story. One angle is that something pretty amazing happened. It reminds me of a Castle Hoska and people being lowered into the pit of hell, right. the pit of despair. You come out, your hair's white, whatever, you're freaked out. Another one is it could be the same gag that was pulled by those folks on the ranch where he went down, he found something, and then he was like, <laughs> oh my God, we've got to get out of here. We'll all die. And then he convinced Marion to never go back and to bury the hole. And then he went back and dug up whatever was there. And then all those years later, when he was cornered again, he was like, I told you never to ask me about that. <laughs> well, it takes a bit of acting. It does. But I'm just saying, we can't completely give ourselves over to, you know, especially in a book like Dobie's. Dobie's book has a, a very uh, a Charles Berlitz feel to it. So Now, hold on. To be fair, Dobie is not saying or claiming that these stories are possibly potentially true. He's coming at it as a folklorist. And he is also saying towards the end of this chapter that there's a lot of mystery and dubious oral history that goes with this. And there are some things we know and just as many things that we could never prove. So he's very, uh, I would say skeptical, but he's accepting of the mystery of sorts. And he's relaying these as this is part of history. This is what happens. As he said, uh, Henry Ford is not the first one to think that history was bunk after something gets uh, found out later, that you got to take this with a grain of salt and that most of these stories are going to be just aspects of legend. But I think if I were Marion Meredith and knew this guy, Clausen, who's a, a, a tough old bird there, and you know this guy, and he's a no-nonsense kind of dude, and he freaks out that badly, it's like, again, this guy would have to be a really good actor, have to have had some forethought about this, and then keep that up, or he was really freaked out by something. And if you take that story to be true, then the bones somehow made their way back into the hole. So not that it was Lafitte himself, but was it a cursed pirate? Was this treasure chest cursed? And somehow, again, if you're going to go with the paranormal angle here, this rough old character named Clausen got some kind of supernatural vision, saw something that just freaked him out to the core. And uh, it makes for a good story. So you kind of have to, you take it as you will. And I like it because it's a very typical treasure story. There's something with a curse on it. You go back and uh, the bones are back, but you can't actually get to it because there is some kind of curse associated with it. Well, this last tale is a classic ghost treasure story, I believe, here. And a story that has a lot of classic elements, not just with uh, treasure ghost stories and things that are cursed, but also uh, if you watch a lot of the, the ghost hunting shows, you'll notice some common tropes here. So Dobie relays this last tale as coming from a book written by Julia Beasley called The Uneasy Ghost of Lafitte. And I'll just read the passage that sets this up because he tells a little story about how the treasure came to be at this location here. One time Lafitte and his buccaneering crew sailed up to what is now Bay Ridge. 
which is opposite the haunted house of Laporte, where supposedly this treasure and this ghost reside. Getting back to the paragraph, he anchored his schooner offshore and rode to the beach with two trusted lieutenants and the heavy chest which none dared touch except at his orders. When the skiff grounded, the watchers on the schooner saw their chief blindfold his helpers. Then they saw the three disappear with a chest behind a screen of grapevine-laden trees. Two hours later, Lafitte returned alone. He was in a black mood, and no one had the temerity to question him. It was supposed that he had caught one of his helpers trying to mark the location of his cache, and had killed them both. Some say he led them back to the pit that they had dug and filled up, made them reopen and enlarge it, and while they were bent down digging, shot them dead. Soon afterwards, Lafitte and his followers went down together in a West Indian hurricane, and his crime-stained treasure still lies buried in its secret hiding place. So then Dobie picks up the story here, and he goes on to explain that he's going to relay the rest of the tale as best he could about this treasure being under an old house at Laporte, and the story coming from an old Confederate veteran who he's going to call Major Walcart, not his real name, because I think at the time, maybe even in the 30s, people would think you're nuts, start raving lunatic for relaying any kind of a ghost story. But apparently, as Walcart says, this takes place on a February night back in the 80s. And of course, we think like, oh, new wave music and uh, bright fluorescent colors. Like, no, no, he's talking about the 1880s. <laughs> so essentially, Major Walcart goes on to describe a trip. He's coming back from a remote location by himself. The weather is horrible, very bleak and gray, and uh, he's exhausted. And it's starting to turn dark, and heavy clouds are approaching, and uh, the weather's turning bad. So he's along the shore of Galveston Bay, near some breakers, and it, uh, there's a bluff, apparently. And so he and his horse think it's a good idea to try and find shelter now, because it's getting dark and the weather's turning even even worse. So he and his horse scramble up this bluff, and he said it was very clay, very wet, uh, they're both drenched, and... He starts hearing this cry, and he says it's very unnerving. It gets louder and louder. It's the cry of a baby. And here's what's interesting about the description. He says, it was like the wail of a child in mortal pain. And I confess that it reminded me of tales I had heard of the werewolf, which lures unwary travelers to their doom by imitating the cry of a human infant. Boy, how many times have we heard that since oh, yeah. we've been <laughs> doing that show? That's how the puck wedgies uh, that, get you. Everything gets you that way. Yeah, yeah, because they're appealing to that. Also, I've heard that uh, if you play baby cries over a recorder on a loudspeaker, it greatly upsets Bigfoots. Well, they don't, nobody likes that. It's a child in distress. But yeah. well, as the story goes on, he gets over the top of the bluff and he sees what looks like a stable and a house next to it. And as he approaches the stable, the cries get fainter, but he goes inside, and of course he finds out then what's causing it. There's a flock of sleeping goats huddled together to keep warm in this stable, and there is a kid, a baby goat, that's kind of stuck in the middle, and all the adult goats are squeezing it so hard it's crying out. So he plucks the goat out, saves him from this pile here that uh, he's getting squished by the adults. And uh, he was glad to be holding the baby goat because it's nice and warm. So he ties his horse up and he starts making it his way towards the house. The horse is very upset, uh, starts winning because it doesn't want to be left there. There's something bad about it. And Major Walcart is getting creeped out as well. Well, 
the doors are barred, but he makes his way through a window and he strikes a match and he sees that, oh, well, there's a fireplace. There's plenty of wood. There's uh, fat pine kindling. There's big solid oak logs. At least I can get warm here and sleep here for the night. So he makes a fire and he uses his saddle as a pillow and his rain slicker as a blanket and he starts to go to sleep. Now he goes back to the story here. I do not know how long I had slept when I became aware of a steady gaze fixed on my face. A man was looking down on me, and no living creature ever stood so still. There was imperious command in the unblinking eyes, and yet I saw a sort of profound entreaty also. It was plain that the visitant had business with me. I arose, and together we left the room, passed its neighbor, and entered a third, a barren little apartment through the cracks of which the wind came mercilessly. I think it was I who had opened the doors. My companion did not seem to move. He was merely present all the time. It is here, he said, as I halted in the middle of the bare floor, that more gold lies buried than is good for any man. You have but to dig, and it is yours. You can use it. I cannot. However, it must be applied only to purposes of highest beneficence. Not one penny may be evilly or selfishly spent. On this point, you must keep faith and beware of any failing. Do you accept? I answered yes, yes. and the visitant was gone, and I was shivering with cold. I groped my way back to my fire, bumping into obstructions I had not found in my journey away from it. I piled on wood with a generous hand, and the flames leaped high. I watched the unaccountable shadows dance on the whitewashed walls, and marked how fire beams flickered across the warpings of the boards in the floor. And then I dozed off. I do not know how long I had been asleep when I felt the presence of the visitant again. The still reproach of his fixed eyes was worse than wrath. I need your help more than you can know, he said, and you would fail me. The treasure is mine to give. I paid for it with the substance of my soul. I want you to have it. With it, you can balance somewhat the burden of guilt I carry for its sake. Again, we made the journey to the spot where the treasure was buried, and this time he showed it to me. There were yellow coins, jeweled watches, women's bracelets, diamond rings, and strings of pearls. It was just such a trove as I had dreamed of when as a boy I had planned to dig for Lafitte's treasure, except that the quantity of it was greater. With the admonition, do not force me to come again, my companion was gone, and once more, I made my way back to the fire. So the story of Major Walcarts goes on to say he took up his saddle and his blanket and he went out to the company of his horse and the wind and the waves were wailing together, but he could see light coming up over the bay. Never was sunrise such a welcome sight to him. And he says, as I settled up and rode off, the doleful boom of the muddy water at the foot of the bluff came to me like an echoed anguish. And that's the end of his story. But as Dobie says, Everyone who stays at the place does not see Lafitte's ghost because he's looking for an honest man to ease the burden of his conscience. And there is a story of a man who was just an enterprising fellow who was there to look for the treasure. And he stays in the house thinking that he'll find the treasure beneath the floorboards. And he runs away that night, never to return. So it has a lot to do with the perceived intention by the ghost. If you are a man of fine metal, then he wants to employ you. He will tell you where the treasure is, but you have to use it for good. 
And if you're not there for good, he's going to scare you off. So as people say, Lafitte's ghost is tormented because he can never find the right man. Well, that is pretty much, uh, speaking of Dickens, who you made reference to a Dickens festival in Galveston, that is a Dickensian story right there. That is just a classic ghost story. A very gothic. It's a a very Wuthering Heights almost with the weather and just the the ghost appearing. And yeah, you're right. I didn't really think about that. Yeah. The admonition, the the promise that you will do something right, Major Walcart just couldn't take on that burden. Yeah. Probably didn't want to deal with it. I actually was probably very scared and freaked out. So as you might imagine, we did ask Cody if he had any stories, and he had a couple of good ones. Uh, We're going to save some of those for Patreon, so if you're a patron, you'll be able to go there and hear those. They're short, not a big deal, but there was another one that was kind of short and simple, but there was something about it that I found kind of eerie. It struck a chord with me. So uh, we're going to play that story for you now. This is based on uh, one of the days they were out hunting for the pride for the ship, and they saw something unusual. One time when Chuck and I because uh, we've made several trips out there, sometimes with our dad, you know, to go hunting, that is, uh, uh-huh. for the ship, uh, sometimes by ourselves. And one time we were out there by ourselves. And I think at this point in time, we were trying to match up maybe some of the aerial shots that I had and with some of the heavier shells that we were considering to be shell banks. And we had pulled the boat up to one portion of the lake and we walked inshore up into the woods and we came back around to another spot and as we were walking up to the edge of the lake i saw two boot prints perfect looking look like i mean they, there was no tread in it they looked like flat sole boots impressions in the sort of muddy whatever you want to call it i don't know it's not like super mud but you know enough to make mm-hmm. an extension and they were facing the lake. I've been doing boats my whole life. There was no drag marks from a boat that had been pulled up like somebody stuck out, you know, stepped out to take a piss or something. No, Mm -hmm. there was no other footsteps walking up to it. And as soon as we saw them, we saw them from about 20 feet away. And we walked up and both of us were just like, what in the (laughs) hell is that? We walked up and inspected it. I got no explanation. Two boot prints. By themselves, just no other footprints walking up. Was it looking no. towards the direction of your find? Sort of, kind of. There's something about that story, just the idea of being out there looking for the pride and then finding this set of footprints on the shore with nothing leading up to or away from them, from guys <laughs> who know what that looks like when a boat comes ashore yeah. or whatever. There's an intensity to it that I thought was really interesting, even though it's a simple little story. And maybe they were just mistaken or something like that, which Cody would be the first to admit, I think. Sure. But it's something that did, I guess, make me think. Well, apparently, someone's still watching. Yes. And if you believe the stories of Lafitte's blacksmith shop and the ghostly encounters that people describe there, there's a pair of red eyes that watch you from the fireplace. And in the shadows, a full-body apparition of what people believe is Jean Lafitte stares at you from the shadows until you look back and then he disappears. I did want to take the opportunity to mention that I think that the name of Cody's story should be called The Ghost of Lafitte's Feet. <laughs> Wait. I've been waiting all oh, day to bring that he, one on you. He is, it's very late where Scott is and it's we're both a. very punchy. It's 2 a.m., The Ghost of Lafitte's Feet. Let's, let's roll with it. 
All right. Well, let, let's wrap this series up. Let's, let's wrap this up. I just got to say that I, I, I have visited Lafitte's blacksmith shop, and, and the only thing that I found scary there was the purple punch uh, slushy that came out of the Hurricane. machine. I don't know what it was. It was yeah. it was purple and uh, some kind of brain freeze material and, uh, and, and powerful, but I, I just, I had one. And so the only thing in the fireplace that I saw were discarded straws, which is probably why... Jean is so upset. People have turned his blacksmith shop, his fencing operation, into a tourist bar. But it's very cool. I, I highly recommend going there. It's got a cool vibe. There's no electric lights, not not much of any. So the whole place at night's lit by candlelight. It's really um, cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. And yeah, you might see something here. People who sit near the fireplace say a cold hand reaches out to grab them. But well, as we wrap up the story here, J. Frank Doby has a, a great approach, as I said a little bit earlier, about what to make of all this and, and treasure stories and legends and lore in general. And he says that you got to take a lot of legend and oral tradition along with the known facts. And that's what makes Lafitte's story such a, a great legend combined with a factual historical tale is that it begins in mystery and ends in mystery. And in between is a lot of cool, raw history. Not all of it great, some of it just really awful for a lot of people. But you can't separate that from early American history. And certainly, whatever you say about Lafitte, he has his place there, he and his brother and all of his cohorts. And to sum up the man's life in his story, I think I would turn to the final words in the chapter on Lafitte by J. Frank Doby, and he ends his description of Lafitte's story like this. Like the man Lafitte, his treasures are uncertain, elusive, mysterious. Doubtless, too, most of the legends concerning them are, like many of those concerning Lafitte, without foundation. Yet there are few monuments so potent to make a name remembered as its association with a great lost treasure. As long as Grand Terre and Galveston Island are above water, Lafitte's treasure is likely to keep the name of Jean Lafitte green. More than one writer has drawn a parallel between Lafitte and Byron's Corsair. At least Byron's closing couplet seems proper to the patriot and pirate of the Mexican Gulf. For him they raise not the recording stone, his death yet dubious, deeds too widely known, he left a Corsair's name to other times, linked with one virtue and a thousand crimes. That's going to wrap up our two-part series on the pirate Jean Lafitte. We're dark next week, but we'll be back on May 9th with a new show. Please remember, the Midnight Library is releasing new shows weekly, however, and we're planning to add the Terry Lovelace Devil's Den Zoom interview footage to Patreon by the 3rd of May. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. I'm Emma Mycroft. I'm Emma Mycroft. I'm Emma Mycroft. Okay, my name is Joe Rakowski. M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E. Future Compensation. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. 
But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>